Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're going to be continuing the ABC of sailing. We're on letter H and it's only taken us two years to get here. So if you've been following these, well done. And um, I'm guessing your uh, 401s have now matured. Um, Okay, so line handling, handling lines, rope work, all that kind of stuff is something which is absolutely fundamental to sailing boats. Um, So I'll make a few uh, caveats before I go on. I do these things over on YouTube. We have the Mariner YouTube channel, and I get all sorts of comments there from people who are so supportive of what's going on, really interesting facts they can add. And then you have kind of like militant... uh, unprofessionals who just want to kind of throw uh, spanners into the works. One of them I got the other day was um, that uh, I should know the difference between calling something a line and calling it a rope. And I'd just like to say before we go any further, I really don't care. And I guess um, I would even promote this as being a way of being on a boat. In the modern age, if you're going to try and cloud something in and, and obfuscate something with jargon, which is just really there to confuse the hell out of folks, um, that's how you destroy a sport and it makes something purely pleasurable into an absolute agony for people who are trying to learn and engage in it. If I say line or I say rope, you know what I mean. And yes, technically, of course, it is line. I think on yachts and on smaller boats, people get a little bit stuck on this thing that the only rope on a boat is the bell rope. Go to sea on a commercial vessel. Go to sea on a merchantman. I think the last time I, I talked to a friend about this who was in the merchant, he could think of 15 things that were called ropes, technically, on a merchant ship. So let's not get too bogged down in little words. I still use left and right instead of port and star, but I say upstairs and downstairs and kitchen instead of galley, and I really don't care. So we'll be talking about how to handle lines, and then for elegant variation, I may use the word rope. And if it pisses you off, then I guess you're listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> the good thing for me is that I have now kind of stopped doing the the public sailing that I was doing for so, so long. Um, you know, the, the model which we had, the pay-to-play model, which was part of Spartan Ocean Racing, my company for the last seven years, um, the that model just doesn't exist in the modern world. And so I'm stepping away from doing the kind of public sailing that I've uh, been doing for so long, taking people out and doing these big events. Um, and it is good in a way because it allows me just to be myself and relax and uh, not have to worry and, and nitpick too much. You know, I can just uh, get along with enjoying my sailing and creating the digital content, which uh, seems to be finding favor with those who, uh, like yourself, are connecting with it. So um, I'm taking an amnesty on if I use the wrong words. Um, once you've done the same mileage I have, we can we can have a conversation. You can push your point. Um, Okay, so line handling, um, it is, as I say, the basis of all things on board the boat, and it is an area which experience really ends up um, giving you a massive advantage. You know, what is it that is characterizes the, the, the line handling of somebody who's more experienced from someone who's less experienced? So we're going to go through some generalities. I already tried to record this podcast a few times, and I found that I just rambled off into (laughs) who would have thought it hey just rambled off into uh, thoughts and kind of ideas on a number of different subjects so to try and create a little bit of structure um, we're going to go through like the working life of a piece of rope from inside the forepeak right through to I know let's say the you know it's it's on the bow of the boat it's at the mast of the boat it's in the cockpit of the boat it's um it's a hanging off the back of the boat being used for safety stuff dragging in the water and then at the end of its life it's it's done and it's finished and it goes off to a new 
new uh, activity, a new a new uh, realm that it can be useful in. And that, I think, should keep me roughly on track. We can go through how things are stored, how things are used on the boat, and then what happens to them when they're finished. And we should, in that time, be able to have a look at... Um, the, the, the main thing I'd say that characterizes the line handling of somebody who's more experienced and less experienced is safer. That's got to be the key word here. Yeah, their hands will probably move faster in the things that they're doing, but fast doesn't connect to anything worthwhile uh, apart from safe. And that's what we need to do. And again, I will color somewhat where my opinion on this stuff comes from. Um, just to give you a you know, a reminder, the boats that I sail are like 60 foot up to 80 foot. I just came back from doing the trip for, um, from Newfoundland to the UK, from the UK to Iceland, Iceland back to Newfoundland and Newfoundland back to Nova Scotia. And um, I sailed UK to Iceland solo on that 80 footer. So the lines which I am working with, like I am working with, not a crew of people, just me, they're very heavily loaded. And I'm going relatively conservatively because I'm not you know, sprinting my way from A to B. We're just delivering the boat to a new crew and then taking a crew of amateurs through to the next destination. So we're not really wanging everything on super tight, but we're dealing with 14 mil Dyneema, which has a braking strain of over 10,000 kilos. That's 22,000 pounds. And when it's operating, it's probably operating about 30 or 40% of that. So we're talking three or 4,000 kilos, 8,000 pounds on the other end of the lines that I am regularly dealing with. So the first thing for me on my own is what I do has to be safe and speed goes absolutely by the board. And then if I am going to incorporate other people into things, we're going to start doing more and more um, racing type maneuvers. If we are down in the Caribbean doing some work, you know, we start to get faster, but the actions always stay the same. And I think, I think it's always important to know what professionalism looks like and then you kind of know what you're aiming for there's there's no part of professionalism where people are putting less winch turns on you know less turns of the rope on the winch there's less um uh, kind of there's less freestyling that you might imagine what they're doing is doing the very safe very usable useful things that you should do with a rope but they're just doing it a bit quicker so um, I would just highlight here that the stuff I'm going to tell you now is exactly how I do it and I don't have any shortcuts that I use when it comes to handling lines because in the end a shortcut really will just kind of bite you on the ass and you're going to end up uh, getting injured or somebody else is going to get injured or you're going to break something on the boat so Let's start with the rope and how it's stored. And for that, we have to kind of look first at what it is that we're dealing with. Now, always and most beautifully, one aspect of sailing is that uh, we have history. We have huge history. It doesn't matter what kind of other thing you're into, if it's golf or tennis or cars or whatever, it didn't exist when sailing kicked off. So that's we've always got that in our pocket. And that brings with it a huge amount of received knowledge, of, uh, of experience, of development, of uh, all sorts of wonderful things. But what it can bring is it can bring the ghosts of traditions past and they can get misappropriated into um, into everyday stuff. Now, at the moment, I'm reading over on my other podcast, Rare Nautical Reads, where I read these old uh, sailing books and try and keep them alive for new audiences. And we're reading a book called 15,000 Miles in a Catch about Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty. He and his crew in the early 1900s sailed from France down to the Kogulian Islands, which are south of Australia, at a time when really nobody had gone there. A couple of sealers, a couple of whalers, and very little was known about it, really stretching to the edges of what was uh, known in the, in, the, in the world. And um, 
he has uh, lots of interesting things to say about the fact. I read a passage today where he said that uh, he did not suffer from the ailment of superstition. And, uh, you know, irregularly they're talking about someone going and standing in the bows and whistling up a wind and they deliberately leave on a Friday. They deliberately leave on the 13th. They themselves in the 1900s are trying to crack these bits of uh, raggedy history that's passed down to them and it ends up just crimping people's style. And never more do you see that in the modern world than with the handling of rope and particularly with the storage of rope. So so if we cast our minds back now, we think we're in the days of yore on a big wooden uh, sailing ship. And obviously the boat brings with it huge amounts of spare equipment, spare gear. It's got uh, spare spars. It's got corking. It's got oakum. It's got... Um, you know, red lead and, and metal fasteners and, uh, and wood and sail material, like it's its own workshop at sea, which you'd expect because they're, you know, they're going so very far and there's so little uh, on the way to help them out. So rope would be one of the things that they would definitely have in storage on the boat. And they'd have it in the many hundreds of uh, yards on board the boat if, you know, they had any kind of budget about what they were doing. Um, because when they broke things, they needed to be able to replace them lickety split. And you can't be stopping off at a desert island and, you know, picking up a load more rope. So um, the rope was stored and it would arrive um, in quite tight coils, um, which uh, the maximum length of the ropes at that time would be de de depicted by the, the length of the rope walk. So you make the rope up from sisal or from hemp or manila. Manila is a, a kind of uh, hemp, uh, just came from um, from the, the Philippines. And um, it's uh, the the three strands of a hawser laid line, a normal kind of twisted old style rope. The three main parts of it are called the strands and those strands are twisted anti-clockwise and then the three are twisted together in something called a rope walk um, and they're twisted clockwise. Now, when they go into that twist, there's nothing that's holding them there. They're not like permed in place. They're not uh, secured by some kind of heat effect or what have you, as you might do with a modern thermoset plastic. They are just twisted into position and what holds them in position is good ongoing maintenance and use of the rope. And this is seen when it's delivered to the ship and it would come in a very tight coil, kind of like a coil of, well, kind of like a reel of rope arrives at the boat now, if you went and bought an entire reel of rope, not that that happens very often, but it's tight, it's bound, and then it's in stops. It's got little pieces of line that go around it at um, you know 12, three, nine, and six, and uh, just secure it in place and it's got a bit of wrapping on it. When that comes out of that coil, it needs to have all of the twists taken out of it. Just like dealing with an electrical flex now or a bobbin of string or indeed a, a, a reel of rope. If you pull the rope off the end of the reel, it's going to have like a zillion twists in it. And where do those twists come from? The twists are deliberately put into it as it goes onto the reel as part of the, the mechanism of going onto the reel. And they're there to hold that old style natural fiber rope in place so that those three strands twisting one way and then twisted together in the opposite direction hold their shape. If it was just, you know, at the chandlery back in the day, kind of hanging up, uh, as you might see a modern rope hanging up in a bosun store, it would start to lose structure and lose shape. It would shake itself out. And then what can happen is that the three strands, because they do have a twist laid into them, if the if the overall twist of the, of the line, the lay of the rope, starts to come undone and get loosened or it gets kind of messed around with, the three individual strands will start twisting onto, them send, onto themselves, sending out three spurs in a kind of mini Mercedes symbol, and that's called hockling, and then the line is, uh, is you have to like really work the rope to get it back into shape. So 
The twist, the layer of the rope, is held in place by the way it's stored. The way that it's stored once it's been in use a couple times, but then it needs to come back off the deck for whatever reason, is that the rope is coiled down onto the deck. You know, these are big lines, it's a big ship. Um, and they're coiled down into uh, big uh, kind of oval shapes on the deck, which could be like six feet long, depending on the size of the line. Round and round and round it goes. And then again, it's secured, but probably by, you know, four or six little stops, little bits of light line that go around it that secure it in place. And then when it's secure and it's become like one cohesive bundle, you take that, put a single twist in the middle, like a figure of eight, and then fold it over on itself and it becomes like a little stacked coil and that would go into a corner in the bosun store and that's ready for use another time. There are lots of twists in that rope now. You have put the twists into it. And this is where I say things end up getting handed down through the heritage of sailing to us and we have to kind of live with them, but they're not very helpful for, to us now. Back in the day on a, on a ship, if a line like that was going to be taken out and used on deck for a, a job, it would need to have all the twists removed from it. It would need to be taken out of that tight coil, the stops obviously removed. It would need to be rolled out or stretched out or shook out or put over the side of the ship or whatever was necessary to get it so it was straight and so that the rope was neutral. And the neutral rope means it doesn't have any inherent twists in it as it's lying there um, that it's going to then take with it up into the rigging. If a rope leaves the deck and it's got twists in it, which have been part of its storage method, then it will carry them with it. It'll pigtail as soon as it gets into some kind of block or turns around some kind of corner or runs itself around a winch in a modern boat and it'll immediately start to twist and then you've got a problem, something's stuck. So we got into a habit over hundreds and hundreds of years, a good habit of knowing that a rope is well coiled and well stowed when it is made into circles where you have imparted a twist to it so the rope lays nice and flat and we can further go uh, and say that when all of those um, loops are those circles are the same length then it is a very well coiled rope and the the reason for that would be that if it did have to hang in uh, on its own loose, then the little um, separate individual loops of rope wouldn't pass through each other and knot up. And also, if you're putting it into stops, when all of the uh, loops of the rope or the, the circles of rope are all the same length and it's easy to put your stops on, it's a nice, neat, finished job. That's how you work an old-style line. Then we spool forward. We spool forward today where pretty much everybody is working um, with um, modern either class one or class two ropes. You're working with um, a, a lighter built rope, which is uh, useful for most boats up to 40 foot. It has a core, which is double braided, and it has an exterior, which is double braided. It is double braided rope. It's probably made of polyester or something like that on modern boats, and it's going to uh, share the load that it is uh, working 50% uh, between the core and 50% on the exterior and the interior and exterior are made of the same kinds of things that's a class one rope we also have class two ropes which is otherwise referred to as a kern mantle rope so kern mantle rope coming from the german kern like the kernel the inside of the seed and mantle the exterior like the, the mantle of the planet the exterior coating of it so we then have a rope which takes 90% of its load on its core and only 10% on its exterior and the exterior the the uh, sheath of the rope is there to help with friction on a winch uh, color and designation of the rope and uh, to keep UV dust and other pollutants out of the core of the rope so we have different kind of ropes now they're double braid the exterior and the interior of a kern mantle rope is also double braided but um, made of very different materials obviously than a normal double braid rope so how do we then work with these lines? 
If we're starting the story of handling rope in the modern world, then we have to know how we are going to store these things so that we have a clean start to what we're doing. And when you buy it in the chandlery, again, it's on a reel. It's on a reel just like it's on a reel um, at the uh, chandlery 200 years ago. But what tends to happen then is that people take it off the reel and then they put it into circles in their hand. They coil the rope and then they do a couple of frapping turns or wrapping turns towards the top quarter of the rope. And then they do some kind of knot and secure it away and hand it to you. There you go. There's your rope ready to go. And that kind of style, that kind of coiling of rope is widespread. It's used all over the place and it's taught as, as good seamanship. Like you can work out when you have coiled a rope nicely by the fact that it's all laying nice and flat in the same plane and all of the coils are in the, the same length. And it's and it, that's it. You've, you've coiled the rope. But is that actually the best way to deal with it? Well, I would say not. And the best uh, tutor for this is your vacuum cleaner. So on the side of the vacuum cleaner, you've got those two little pegs and uh, you've got the electrical flex. And then you're looking at it thinking, okay, do I go round and round them or do I go in a figure of eight? Now I can tell you that you meant to go in a figure of eight. And here's the difference. If you go round and round, then you are imparting to the cable little quarter turns at the top and at the bottom. If you do it, like wrap up the flex on the vacuum cleaner, you can, uh, going round and round and round, you can feel how you have to put that little twist in at the top and that little twist in at the bottom. It's quite a, it doesn't really want to twist an electrical cable, so you can feel that you have to do it. And if you don't do it, it's a real kind of messy um, coiling on the side of the vacuum cleaner. The top peg on the vacuum cleaner has got a little kind of swivel. It can flick down. And that's there so you can get the cable off nice and quickly. But <clears throat> if you get the cable off nice and quickly by undoing that top peg and just letting the cable go onto the floor, if you then set off with a vacuum cleaner across some big, wide, open, hypothetical room that you can really get that cable out straight, you're just doing the equivalent of pulling the rope off the end of a reel of rope. You're, you're doing the same as pulling wire off the end of a, a reel of wire. It's going to come out with all of the twists that were imparted to it by the way that it was stored. And that's the same with modern rope. Modern rope with the double braid um, construction, whether it's class one or class two, it doesn't need to have um, a twist added to it in storage for it to hold its shape. It's, it's set into that shape. And that double braid shape is, uh, is so stable that it doesn't, uh, it's not going to undo on its own. Obviously, you can fray the end of a rope, any rope that's just left hanging. But, you know, a, a reasonably well secured end to a line, it's not going to come apart or lose its structure when it's in storage for a couple of months on the boat. But had you done that with a traditional line, it would have been a problem. So the storage method of the old ships, the twisted hawser-laid line, that's not required on, and it's not part of um, the, the, the modern situation. I guess then we have to ask the question, what is the modern situation? Well, the modern situation is that you've got a rope down below decks, and at some point you're probably going to pull it up on deck. It may be the start of a day's racing, or you're pulling out the spinnaker sheets on your, on your cruising or something, but something's going to come out of storage, and then essentially it's going straight into work. It's, it's going to be undone by whatever method you've used to store it and then it's going to be in the cockpit and then kind of the next thing you're doing with it is you're sending it off through the deck gear or off up the mast or whatever it's, it's going to be working so as it doesn't need to be stored in such a way to hold its shape we need to then spool forward to well what did tall ships do with ropes that were neutral and were ready to go 
up the mast. That's the question to ask. And what they would do is flake them on the deck. There was a couple of different methods of doing it, but if you were sending a rope off up the deck, uh, sorry, well, off up the deck or off up the mast, you would flake the rope so that the twist that you put at one end is uh, neutralized out by the twist that you put at the other end as you get to one end of your flake and then to the other end of your flake. You flake anchor chain, you'll flake any kind of line that needs to run out very quickly because you know that's what it needs to be able to run without twists. But that hank of rope that you just brought up on deck to do the XYZ job on deck, that has been stored in coils. It's got loads of twists in it. And not many people are kind of getting all the rope out of storage and then tidying all up on the deck, making sure there's no twists on it before they expect it to go off down the deck. They're just sending it away on its first bit of work and then wondering why it all gets twisted up. So how do we negate this? Well, sailing um, with this rope technology, the Kern Mantle rope technology is kind of in bed with um, climbing and with caving. And climbers and cavers were actually using Kern Mantle rope before sailing was. And they kind of come up with quite a few different methods of dealing with rope that makes it really very easy to solve this problem. And what they do is they either do it in figure of eight if it's going to be stored in a stationary position, which is for us like if you had um, a spinnaker sheet that you'd you know, it's maybe like it's the end of the day. Um, you don't want to take the spinnaker sheets off because you're going sailing again the next day. We've got all this rope in the cockpit. What do you do with it? Well, just put a couple turns around the winch and then start laying figure of eight up clockwise on the, to the winch and then down and into an anti-clockwise turn, then back clockwise on top of the winch and down into an anti-clockwise turn. And the little quarter twist that's in the top is negated by the quarter twist at the bottom. So that when that bundle of figure uh, of rope that's in a figure of eight is then cast onto the deck and the rope starts to come out of that setup, it will come out neutral. It'll twist a little bit one way, but it'll each, it instantly be equalized by a, a little twist that went the other way as it starts to undo itself. The alternative is to fold the rope. And if you go to my YouTube channel, also called The Mariner, the first video that I ever did, the one that kind of gave me, unfortunately, a little bit of a, um, uh, an unfair idea of how easy it is to do things on, on, on YouTube as it, it got the most views of anything I've ever done and then things kind of went silent after that but um, folding rope uh, is something which is done by all climbers they would never think to coil up a rope same with cavers they'd never do it it just makes such a nightmare of trying to deal with what comes next like using the rope but all you do you put out your hand like you're going to coil the rope and then you fold it first to one side and then then to the other side and those little quarter twists that you're putting in are all neutralized as the rope comes out of that situation. So say when we look at the history of sailing, there's lots there that we bring down and we learn and we know about what we're doing, but it comes with these ghosts rattling their chains like, oh, you only know what you're doing if your ropes are all coiled up. And the other one you see is when people have cheesed the rope on the dock next to their mooring line. So that that actual shape on a tall ship if you're doing that today, you know, I worked on Dharma Jersey, Oscar Schelder, um, Ji Fung, um, Luin Tu, like that big cheesed up rope on the side deck. What that means is that the rope is inactive and um, not not quick to, not going to go into use very quickly. So if you've got like a sail, like a halyard or something like that, you could, you could cheese up the halyard for something like a... I don't know, I'm trying to think now what would be like that, like a fisherman's sail or something like that. You could cheese up the rope if you wanted to. It's got a big flat surface area. It sits down there on the ground next to the taffrail and it won't move around because of that friction as the boat lurches around in the seaway. And then when it is time to um, do something with that sail, the rope's going to be taken out of that shape 
passed all the way down the deck and held by a big long string of crew and they're going to get the twists out of it super easily before they then start to work that line but you would never have a cheese on a piece of rope that you may need to deal with quickly i.e a mooring line so twisting rope up coiling rope up is not the way to start the the day with a piece of rope um, in the previous version of this podcast i tried to <laughs> i tried to describe via the medium of speech exactly how to put rope into a uh, storage coil it's called a storm gasket it's my preferred method of doing it and the one that over time i've seen reveals the best results um, but uh, it just ends up being almost impossible you, you're doubling back over yourself trying to explain exactly what's happening so go and have a look at that video on the mariner youtube channel it's called folding rope and hopefully you'll be able to get an idea of then how it sits and is stored in the bosun's locker in the forepeak wherever you keep your rope but the main thing with handling lines and uh, getting it to work out so it's smooth and so it's safe is that the rope does not have loads of twists in it so let's imagine now the next part of the journey of the rope the ropes come up and it's in the cockpit and it is then going to go into use let's start first with a halyard so working with halyards working with lines on boats um, there's a lot of very similar processes that happen which um, require you to know the same skills and then apply them in lots of different places and we get that a lot on boats you know we have all these winches but we can use them for different tasks with all these different jammers and there's there's things that you need to know how to do and then once you know how those tools work you can kind of use them in any way that you see fit but first part of the job is going to be working with a halyard and that means that the halyard's going to be raising let's say a jib and that means that the person in the cockpit and the person with uh, at the mast are going to be working in cahoots to get the sail up. So that's an important piece of line handling, uh, rope handling. Let's discuss that. But before we do, uh, the podcast is not um, sponsored by anybody. Um, we did for a short period of time have association with an insurance company. And then a business uh, acquaintance of mine pointed out to me that it would be perhaps a poor idea to be sponsored by a insurance company in case anybody thereafter had an issue with that insurance company and I'm the one that has kind of said these are the guys whether it's my insurance company or not so um, I've disconnected myself from that situation now I'd like to find a, a, some kind of a associate or partner for the podcast but I can take this opportunity just to talk a little bit about Patreon which is where these days um, I'm actually doing most of my business we're not going out doing the sailing in the Caribbean and across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean that we used to do it's too complex and too too risky in the in the sense of the business risk of it and you know we went through COVID and all the rest of it then we went through crises with insurance ourselves and it's just like this is too much headache then I realized actually people in the modern world were consuming things via podcasts and via YouTube and Patreon is a fantastic place to bring all of that together so Patreon is an opportunity for you to support the podcast, the YouTube channel, all the various things I'm doing. And with your membership there, uh, whichever level you choose, you get extras which kind of uh, give you access to more material. So the basic layer for those people who are listening to the podcast, I'd invite you to come over and join the crew. It's $5 a month. And remember, that's uh, Rare Nautical Reads, which goes out five days a week, Monday to Friday, plus the Mariner podcast, which we've been nailing one or two a week. I'm hoping to get it up to three a week. Um, it's it's a lot of production, as you can imagine, with all the YouTube stuff as well. But that's that's the goal. If we're going to do this, we'll do it properly. And um, at $5 a month, you're really helping support that. 
Uh, $20 a month gives you access to all the extra videos and all the extra material that I've got on there. And I'm just starting to add more and more stuff there. It's uh, it's a new change in direction for me. It's not a sideline, it's a, a focus. And I'm excited to be putting more stuff on there. And then there are options thereafter, which help support me in a more... Um, instantaneously meaningful manner that uh, $50 a month really helps uh, change what the, the outlook for me here. And I say I have a big project which I'm going to be uh, telling you all about in the next uh, week. And uh, I'm going off sailing again, doing a big sailing trip. Uh, I'm entered, I'm squared away, I'm ready to go. And um, I'll be sharing all of the updates for that um, preparation for that project over on Patreon. So if you haven't already, please have a look at patreon.com forward slash the mariner. I really appreciate your ongoing support. Okay, so let's have a look then at uh, how we hoist sails. This seems to be something that's uh, overlooked and I would share with you that you're not alone if you find it difficult to, to get information um, out of people that you sail with, particularly if you do a lot of racing. I, I found my own experience and I guess it's just the people I was racing with, but it, you know, it was kind of consistent for like 10 or 15 years. I end up finding that I'm like nervous to ask questions because I then it's kind of like, eh, eh, like, oh, clearly I don't know what I'm doing. But once I had got enough miles and I had got enough under my belt that I was happy to ask people questions on the boat, I found that people kind of fell into two different baskets. Either they they kind of felt what they were doing and they were kind of known for their trimming or known for their foredeck work or it's a thing they liked to do. But there wasn't really much of a kind of theoretical or, or even experience-based background that would say why they were doing that and so they get answers like well the boat likes it or that's just the way we do it or you know it feels better or something um, and then there were other people that you could actually get like 100% meaningful um, answers that you could take to the bank and like oh I know why we're doing that now and I can take that and use it myself and I was extremely lucky to sail with people like that who helped fill in gaps for me so working at the mast is one of those where you can get onto a boat for the day and get asked to go the mast and start haul, hauling up a sail and um, you can end up discovering that it's a much more difficult than you thought if it's some kind of race boat you get shouted at a lot because it's not going up fast enough or you're not doing it right um, or c that just it, it's not very enjoyable for you because uh, you know it's kind of wild and crazy world where you're pulling on this rope and things are flapping and Dis disappearing around you over the side of the boat and suddenly it's your fault you don't know what it is that you did to even create the prompt so let's have a quick look at how to um, handle lines when they're at the mast and it's a halyard as i say it's a it's a cooperation between the person at the mast and the person that's tailing in the cockpit so the tailing job in the cockpit we'll come back to in just a second because that's going to um, kind of lead us off into how winches work but let's work on the basis that that person in the cockpit when they get some slack on the line developed by the person at the mast then they're going to take in that slack and the method that they're using means that they're providing a full anchor that the person at the mast can't pull the rope back out from the cockpit. They can only pull it in such a manner that pulls up the sail. So first off, the top of the sail on a Bermudan rig, everything's super light. So the head of the sail starts to go and you can just jump and throw rope down. Throwing rope is where you kind of jump into the air or certainly reach high above you, grab hold of the rope with both hands and throw it down towards the uh, the turning block at your feet at the base of the mast and it's taken in by that automatic uh, person's uh, actions in the cockpit, okay, perfect. Now, a detail here is that you can instantly show 
what kind of mast person you are um, by the way that you're orientated to the mast. If you're at the mast, you can have one foot forward and one foot back to get a good strong base for what you're going to be doing. But that means your hips are going to be orientated towards the cockpit or they're going to be orientated towards the bow. They should be orientated towards the cockpit and your ears should be orientated towards the bow. The bow person is going to be the one that is controlling the sail going up, whether it's a jib, whether it's a spinnaker, whatever it is, they're going to be the one that is keeping it off the mast if it's a flying sail, or they're going to be making sure that it's feeding into the bottom of the foil or the um, the the, uh, the feeder, pre-feeder at the bottom of the, uh, the forestay. They're going to be doing that. And you just have to keep your ears attuned that if they say stop, then you stop pulling at the mast. The hips orientation towards the cockpit is to show that you're kind of aware of the fact that the number one relationship you have to have is with that person in the cockpit. Now, line handling, the whole point of this discussion today is to make it safe. So I'll share at this point an accident that happened with me. It's one of only a handful of accidents that have happened in all the time I've been at sea, touch wood. And um, it happened to a friend of mine called Chris. And Chris was uh, hoisting the spinnaker on uh, Clipper 68 as we were going out across the Atlantic on the first major leg of the 0910 Clipper race. And um, huge energy from Chris, huge enthusiasm and an absolute hero. And he's hoisting, hoisting, hoisting on this piece of um, 14 mil Marlowe braid rope, getting the spinnaker up. And the spinnaker was in, I think it was probably in stops at that point, going back 10 or so years, it probably wooled. And um, it started to open halfway up. And uh, what Chris didn't realize is that the rope had been kind of pooling at his feet, hadn't been going through the turning block properly. The person in the cockpit hadn't pulled it all in. So when the sail started to open, Chris was exposed to the full uh, force of that and it came into his hands. He tried to hold it to be a hero and, and save the situation, but he's never going to win and uh, got his hands badly burnt for for his uh, efforts. So um, he was easy to deal with. And within a week, he was back on full uh, active duty and it was just uh, bad rope burns to the hands. So that's the minimum. The maximum with mast uh, people can be that they uh, go over the side when they throw themselves into their work, but then throw themselves over the side of the boat. So you should always be clipped in. and um, Or that they, they come down hard on their coccyx. That seems to be the other one that they miss and for whatever reason then fall onto their coccyx onto like some deck tidy or rail or the edge of the cabin or something like that. So there are dangers there at the mast. Um, there are other ones we can discuss when you do other jobs, but when it comes to hoisting, you're jumping in the air, grabbing the rope and throwing it down or reaching above your head and throwing it down for as long as you can while everything is super, super light. Now quickly, the sail is gonna start going up the forestay or the kite's gonna start going into the air and it's gonna get just a little bit too heavy for you to reach up and in a speedy way pull that line down you're going to have weight on the other hand other other side of it so it's time to start climbing rope which is where you go hand over hand just quickly quickly hand over hand above your head pulling it down to about your chest and then changing for the other hand up 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 until you get to a point where it is no longer quick to do that because uh, when you reach up you can't speedily pull it down to your chest now it takes a little bit of time to overcome the weight and the friction in the system and you need to have a, a new better method for pulling and that's when the skill set starts to play at the mast because now it's time to sweat or swig at the mast so what you'll see when people are pulling the ropes at the mast is that they have some like kind of quite dynamic action that they're engaged in which seems to involve being away from the mast somewhat um, and then suddenly how magically the the top of the sail is able to get to where it's meant to be up close to the sheath this is sweating the line and it relies on a physical or a principle of physics where you can develop mechanical advantage by applying what's called a vector load to a line. So if you imagine 
Um, imagine something like a tightrope, something like that. Someone's out on a tightrope and they're standing in the center of it. Now your immediate instinct is that that's going to create quite a lot of force at either end. It's going to try and draw that line in and uh, if it wasn't secured properly at the ends, that tightrope would break off of its uh, uh, anchors and the person would plunge to whatever was the ground. The same would happen on the life rails on the on the boat, sorry, the lifelines on the boat. Um, if you go and sit on the lifelines, if you hang a fender off it and it starts to deflect down, you're creating a massive load at either end. Now, what happens if it's very, very secure at one end and it's kind of mobile at the other end? Well, what happens is that vector force, it's operating at 90 degrees to the um, the central kind of uh, line of the, of, the, of the rope. If one end is very secure and the other end is kind of movable, you get a multiplication of your power and you can put about 140% of the strength into it that uh, you would have otherwise had by just pulling it hand over hand. Now, I don't actually understand the physics of how this works. So if someone wants to write to me, csmthemariner at gmail.com and explain what's the, what's the process of mechanical advantage, I'd love to hear that and I'll, I'll share it with you in the next one. But the point is that when you're at the mast and it's time to start getting the, the last part of the sail up, the heavy bit all the way to the sail's got to go into the air, the gig you've got to do is then change to grabbing the rope so it's at shoulder height and then sort of throwing your weight backwards so that it comes up short against your hand. That can either be in a fully extended or somewhat kind of um, bent uh, elbow kind of position, depending on how close the shrouds are and you know what's around you and your style. But you throw your weight back until it comes up short against your me mechanics of your body. And that means all of your moving force of your body and your strength and the, the effort you've put into yourself is then transmitted into the rope at 90 degrees to its sort of its direction the, the the straight line between the turning block at the bottom of the mast and the mast exit then you are able to create this huge amount of force which is then able to get the sail up to the top of the hoist and like for me on the boats that i'm on at the moment if i think of the the maxi i was putting three different sails up uh, during the period of time that uh, i was away sailing her solo the staysail the J3 and the J5, by far the J3 was the heaviest of those. And I can't um, I can't sweat, sweat them up on my own. Obviously, that's not going to work, so I have to grind them the whole way, which takes forever. But when I have crew on board and I'm working those sails, I know that I can sweat all of them up to the top of the mast pretty quickly, definitely quicker than I can grind them up there, even if I'm using the, um, the uh, coffee grinder and the big winches. And... Uh, I guess that would lead us on a little bit to talking about um, winches, which is the other half of the job that's happening at the mast. Um, the The thing with winches is that people think it's kind of like open to interpretation, like the way that they do it and so forth. And that's really not kind of what's going on at all. There are physical principles at play here. There's the design of the winch and there's the safe operation of that equipment um, as it's been kind of passed down to us now through you know, many decades of these modern ropes at these high loads working on modern winches. So what exactly is going on with the winch and how do we keep ourselves safe? So again, I'll put a caveat in here that I'm working with winches which are in the kind of 12 inches across, you know, 20, 30 centimeters across going up to um, big super yachts I've worked on which are like three feet across. Um, there's very large loads. But what happens on those uh, boats with highly loaded lines and big sails and all the rest of it, the same thing is happening on a smaller boat. It's just that you're able to negate a lot of the negative outcomes that would happen through poor um, rope handling, poor line handling, um, by just 
overpowering whatever load is on the other end of it when the boat's 20 foot, 30 foot, or even 40 foot. So uh, if I'm dealing with a jib sheet on a bigger boat, unless it's literally like less than five knots of breeze, I can just pull the line in. It's super easy. And I can do that with one turn, two turns, three turns, whatever it is, and uh, I'm gonna be okay. But as soon as we're out to that sort of five knot territory, we have to think very carefully about what the winch is doing, what it means to us, and, and how it can go wrong. So. The, the start with the most simple kind of <clears throat> design elements to the winch. What have we got? If we're dealing with a, a relatively modern self-tailing winch, we've got an angled uh, flare at the bottom of the winch drum. We've got a winch drum which sits four inches to 10 inches high, something like that, whatever it is, whatever size winch you're working with. And then it's got that little thing that sticks out from the side called the stripper or the feeder, depending on how you're kind of looking at it. It feeds the line up into the self-tailor from the drum and then it strips that line off the self-tailor and deposits it in the cockpit or wherever you're working so um, those elements are pretty widespread there's not much uh, difference you may have two speed three speed four speed winch whatever it is but how that winch works and what it does is uh, pretty standard across all sizes and everything else once a load comes onto the line you've got to be very very careful of uh, getting sucked into the winch and getting your hands badly damaged or getting thrown down the deck or thrown over the side of the boat. And you have to be careful of making the uh, mistake of getting an override in the winch, which in some combinations can lead to a situation where um, the rope has to be cut off the winch. So let's, let's go through that. So um, in terms of safety, the handling of the winch, um, I guess that starts at... Uh, where you've got two turns on the winch. So I guess let's, okay, let's have a think about this. And so one turn on the winch is when you've just got the rope comes in, does a full 360 on the winch and then goes down to the cockpit. And that would be how it's left when a system is uh, lazy. So you've got a working sheet on one side of the boat and the lazy sheet on the other side of the boat or the lazy spinnaker sheet, whatever it is, it's just got one turn around the winch, i.e. that rope may have to go into operation quite soon. It's expected that it'll be working on this winch and it's got one turn on it to kind of indicate that. And the one turn is there also that if you're trying to pull the line forward onto the foredeck or up to the mast from the cockpit, one turn on the winch will help to strip any turns that have made their way into the rope, any kind of bundling of the rope, it'll strip that out of it and it should come nice and clean off that one turn and then to you at the mast or the foredeck. That's called a stripping turn. So we leave one stripping turn on when we're not working the rope. I wouldn't ever really pull a line in with only one turn on the winch because then you have to sort of wonder, well, why are we even bothering to have the turn around the winch? May as well just pull it directly by hand. Also a massive no-no because winches are there to give us mechanical advantage and the other 50% of their work is to protect us from the load on the other end of the rope. Okay, we have to view it that way and how you operate your winch will give you greater or lesser protection. Two turns is where you start to interact with the winch and that's where you start to tail for somebody who's working uh, a line at the mast. So at that point, that person's gonna be reaching above them initially and just pulling the rope down, jumping rope or uh, climbing rope later on and you're gonna have to move really quick to get the rope through the winch. So you're in the cockpit, stood, stood up or kind of slightly kneeling next to the winch and you're gonna be pulling rope off the winch as quick as possible. And there we have to think about two things, safety and the potential for uh, an override. So override is where the incoming line to the winch 
jumps up onto one of the turns that are already on the winch, thereby locking up the system. The load on the incoming rope starts to pin the lines above it. And if you keep grinding the winch, keep turning the winch, it'll lock up into a format where you can neither ease nor take in any further on the winch. So we don't want that to happen. We're trying to get the sail up as quick as we can. So we have two turns on the winch. The rope comes in, does a full turn, does another full turn before exiting the winch. And the how many turns are on a winch should be answered by at any point on the winch, what's the maximum number of wraps you can see? So there'll be a bit where you've got three turns on the winch and it looks just maybe in one corner like you've got four turns on where the rope comes in and goes out close by each other. But that's three three wraps on the winch. Um, you know, you can have three and a quarter, three and a half, three and three quarters, but really you want to be looking at how many full turns are on the winch. And most times when you're dealing with uh, a rope in a cockpit, you're only at 90 degrees to the incoming rope. So the rope should come in in front of you, probably coming in from your, uh, the, the, the pit from the, the jammers or, or clutches that you've got there comes in, goes round around the winch, then comes out to you. The stripper on the winch, the, the feet of the stripper, the, the teeth, the, whatever you want to call it, that little thing that feeds the line up onto the self-tailor, that bit is normally for a right-handed crew member at five o'clock position so that the rope comes up and strips out the self-tailor to the right-hand side of the person that's working the winch. Okay, little aside, but two turns on the winch is a number which will never override. You can pull in as fast as you want and whether there's load or no load on the other side of the rope, on the standing part of the rope, it will not override itself. There's just not enough um, uh, st stability of the line on the drum for something coming in to then jump up on top of it. It'll jump on top and then it'll instantly fall back off and it will be able to come in nice and quick. And then we do the first of the good uh, line handling uh, techniques we should do at this point, which is to make sure that our little finger is the bit that's uh, on the winch side of our hand. So when we're pulling a rope normally, it's thumb and forefinger forwards as though we're doing a tug of war. What we want to do is flip the hand over into what some people call the dagger grip, um, little finger towards the winch, and we're pulling in the rope like that. And when we're pulling in for somebody who's jumping rope at the mast, we're literally taking handfuls of line from just off the winch, you know, like three or four inches off the winch, and we're pulling it right up to our ears. So you get these massive handfuls of, of line, and that's easy to do because you're just moving the weight of the rope that's between the person at the mast and the winch that you're operating, and uh, not too much brain power is required to do that quickly and effectively. As soon as load starts to come on, like as soon as they stop jumping rope and you can no longer pull it up to your ears, then you're adding a turn to the winch immediately. Now, I guess it's a point here to note that when someone's trying to haul something up at the mast using the technique we just described, the person in the cockpit is not helping them. That's They are helping them by the fact that they complete a specific task related to taking in the slack. They're not helping that person at the mast by adding force to help pull the sail up. If you're doing something whereby you have agreed that together we're going to pull on this, well, you've already lost the plot anyway. So it's uh, that's, that's outside of what I'm talking about. But in normal operations, there's a timing that's required to get the work done effectively at the, at the mast. And that comes down to the person in the cockpit knowing what's going on. So you're pulling up these handfuls of rope to your ears, reaching into 
close, but not too close to the winch. And with that dagger grip, um, it should minimize the kind of injury that you can get. So what kind of injuries are likely around winches? Well, you may have heard the term degloving, and let's have a quick chat about that. It's, I would normally describe this in absolutely abhorrent detail to a, uh, a crew that I can see in front of me and I can judge where they're at like to, to discuss this. The reality is that fingers can go into winches and the reality is that um, we can remove the skin wholesale from a finger. That is degloving and there's some terrible pictures of that online, but it is very important to understand what the risk is, how serious it is, and understand how it happens. So the first big no-no when you're um, handling line is you can't be wearing rings. It doesn't matter if you've been married forever and you never take that ring off. I'm sure your loved one would rather you came home with the skin on your fingers than off it. So there's never any logical uh, reasoning behind someone saying, well, I wear my ring when I do this. As soon as they do that, it just means they don't really understand what the risk is. Nothing even close to it has ever happened to them. They never have seen it. And they're just working on that kind of, well, it hasn't happened, so it won't happen type basis. So um, rings, if they can get into the winch, if your hand starts to go into the winch by the fact that the winch is pulling on the rope, there's not enough friction on the wraps that you've got on the winch, and it starts to actually pull you back into the winch you're not quick-minded enough to let go of the line or you're unable to and your ring gets in there then your ring is going to pull your finger into the winch and as you pull against it to try and get your hand back out the edge of the ring is going to do its work and uh, separate bone from flesh which is disgraceful thing to happen to anybody on any boat everywhere anywhere because it's absolutely uh, avoidable if you use the dagger grip um, the benefit is that um, your fingers are taper from bigger joint to smaller joint to smallest joint. So if a bigger part of the hand has gone in, the only way you're possibly going to get it back out is if the thing that you're, the next thing that you're trying to pull, you know, you pull one joint out, the next joint needs to be smaller, the next joint needs to be smaller than that, and you may just slip it out. The problem is if you've got a ring there, or if your thumb goes in because the, that major joint in your thumb is bigger than, uh, than the piece of uh, bone that uh, before it, essentially. If you're going from the knuckle on the hand to the knuckle actually on the, uh, the, the thumb itself, there's a thin bit there in between those two knuckles. And of course, uh, apocryphally, that's how you would tie up a ninja because you can't uh, get the, 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 uh, the, the joint apart successfully and release yourself if your big toes and thumbs are tied together. You know, from my ninja <laughs> imprisoning days. But um, the, the point being, keep your thumbs out the winch, particularly keep your rings out the winch. And then gloves, we have to discuss gloves. So when you're handling lines um, on, on bigger boats, it's not actually that essential to wear um, gloves. On tall ships back in the day, absolutely not. And on big boats, you'll tend to find very few times that people will be wearing, maybe if you're actively trimming, trimming a spinnaker, on a boat 50 foot plus, you'll be uh, doing it with gloves on. But if you're trimming a, a spinnaker on a boat of that size, you've probably got that much, that many turns on the winch just to, to be able to hold it, a human to be able to hold the load, that um, you should have full control. If, if you're doing anything with gloves, it'll be because you're worried that if the rope starts to get out of control, you may not be able to get your hand out of the way fast enough. You get a, a rope burn from it. Now, on smaller boats... Um, I know that with spinnaker work and with all sorts of things you're doing, there is a possibility of like really kind of, you know, making making some uh, injuries to your hands, um, just things moving unexpectedly. Um, you, you know, you don't do this kind of work all the time. So your hands are a little bit softer. So it's easier for the soft 
flesh to get kind of puckered up and pulled and ripped and torn. Um, so obviously gloves there and you have to decide whether you want fingerless or just the first finger and the thumb fingerless or, or tipless rather so that you can uh, manipulate things. Um, but you have to make your own decision. The ones to avoid is gloves that have all the fingers in. Um, I know that a lot of people uh, what I sailed with in Hong Kong would use those kind of modern uh, mechanicing gloves or um, gloves that you might use for cleaning that have a kind of rubberized palm, maybe rubberized fingers. They offer great grip. But again, if those tips get into the winch, um, it can start to pull the glove in. And if you're not quick enough, it'll the glove, unless you can pull your gloves off very easily by pulling only on one finger, the glove is not going to come off easily when that tip of that one finger gets pulled into the winch and you're trying to get your hand out. And of course, the glove won't come off. So um, make your decision. Let's say on big boats, it's kind of easy. I always tell people, you know, there are just two sorts of ropes here. There's lines that you can hold and there's ones that you can't hold. There's ones that are going to you know, get completely out of control instantly. And so you just, there's, there's never a point where rope's going to be sliding through your hands like that unless you're making a mistake. So um, certainly when I've been sailing for more than a month and uh, working lines, just from pulling on lines and working lines, your hands dry out and the salt and the, the UV on the hands and, you know, the, the wind and everything's just drying, drying, drying to your hands. And you have massive pads on your uh, palms and, and uh, between your thumb and forefinger and under your each pad on your fingers. And then, of course, when you come home from sea, um, after about two weeks, they'll start to come off. It looks like your hands are sort of shredding. But um, those calluses are there to, to do the work that a glove can do. But a glove does have this risk associated with it, which with smaller winches, it's easier to get the tip nipped into the winch and then it pull, pulls you in. So we have to avoid that at all possible costs. And we do that by keeping our little finger towards the winch and by never getting too close to the winch um, when we're pulling rope quickly in a kind of like pulling in a spinnaker sheet, pulling in a jib sheet, pulling, a, a tailing a, a halyard. And uh, the other thing is that then when we're actually working the winch, which we're going to discuss in a second, being very, very careful that again, the material of the gloves can't get pinched into the lines and, uh, and then you get sucked in. So um, degloving is a big issue. The other thing that happens when your hand goes into the winch, I have heard tell of this from in first person by people that have uh, unfortunately experienced it as your uh, hand starts to go into the winch i.e something on the other side of it you haven't got enough turns on the winch and the spinnaker loads up or the jib starts to pull or whatever it is and it's the rope starts to back off the winch and go back down the foredeck towards whatever's pulling it um, if you don't let go of the rope and it starts to get you in there it kind of does like an aikido or a judo move on you once it's got hold of your thumb you can lead a person around by their thumb all day long and if you twist and turn it they will have to go whichever way that joint moves because the pain is excruciating otherwise and you um, find the same thing if people if their hands go into winches they get kind of thrown out onto the side deck thrown off towards the, the, the stern of the boat if it's on the port side, thrown forwards if it's on the starboard side, and um, they will end up with a, a dislocated thumb at best, if not degloved. So again, watching out how close your hands get to winches is very, very important. I can't think off the top of my head in the last decade a rope that's got out of control in such a manner with me on a boat because I'm always so cautious with them and it's easier perhaps you know if you own an R1 motorcycle then you're probably a lot more careful with your throttle control than when you own a 125 Honda Melody you know it's uh, you just when there's big risks and you're more careful right the, the problem is when you're at that kind of 35 40 foot range and you're pretty happy with how your winch stuff goes then one day the spinnaker sheet starts to run and you get pulled into it because you weren't being cautious enough so winches and running winches one turn is for stripping two turns is for pulling it in for um 
uh, tailing something at the mast, three turns is where the winch body itself will actually impart some kind of meaningful friction to the to the line. So how is friction developed between the winch and the line? Two things, there's normally some kind of friction material uh, choice on the actual drum of the winch itself. It might just be a kind of um, speckling. I, I don't know how you exactly explain that. You know, the kind of roughened surface to the winch or vertical striations on older winches or um, something that allows it to grip. And then, as we said, with the newer Kernmantle style ropes, they often have a polyester or a polyester mixed uh, exterior sheath. And that's there to help that Dyneema uh, grip onto the winch also you know if you're working with like vectran ropes on uh, on on top end race boats um it's also there the the vectran gives off this yellow dust which gets on everything so there's a little aspect there that if you see professional sailors with yellow all over their shirts it's coming out of the ropes but um the the exterior uh coating of the rope or the exterior sheath rather of the rope is designed by the rope manufacturer to give the ultimate um friction um, uh, qualities as it's in clutches, jammers, and when it's on winches. And at three turns, you kind of get to the first threshold where you'll be able to like hold a little bit of weight. And this is the danger zone. And literally, the comment that I got on uh, YouTube recently was that um, they just put three turns on the winch and like that's enough. So I, I this is how my logic goes. I tried to explain this in my reply to that um, comment just because it's a safety thing. I don't normally kind of get into these uh, fracas online, but. Um, the three turns and then up into the self-tailor will get the jib in. The problem is not at that moment. The problem is when the jib's then loaded up and you're beating to windward in heavy conditions and you want to do anything to that line because the self-tailor is holding most of the weight. And when you take it out of the self-tailor, if, if your technique's not perfect, or even if it is, you're going to be exposed to a lot of load from that, that line unexpectedly. It didn't have much load on it as you went through the tack, but now we're powered up and we're doing an excellent number of knots to windward suddenly there's a lot of weight in that sheet and as soon as it comes out the self-tailor you're exposed to it now the winch manufacturer um, their job is to certainly this is a good point to look at racing winches to kind of understand what's going on the winch manufacturer is trying to sell a product that we want it looks sexy it does the job it's you know minimal maintenance and long term it will work and it interacts with all the most common rope sizes you can imagine the kind of design principle they go through one of the things for racing winch is that they want it to be as light as possible. They want to use as least material as possible to get the job done. So when you're looking at a winch and you're looking at the size of the winch, you can guess what kind of rope sizes it's intended for by the size of the teeth in the self-tailing mechanism on the top of the winch. The rope should fit in there with the teeth having the top ring of the winch having just moved a little bit to accommodate the rope and to uh, then hold it enough to, to tail it in the self-tailing function. You don't want to be seeing those uh, that spring uh, the, the spring mechanism in the top like really stretched to ex uh, maximum extent because you're going to damage the mechanism in the end. That's often what we see when people are putting their mooring lines onto their winches and then snugging them into the top into the self tailing mechanism you're actually stretching the springs and reducing the ability of that mechanism to hold a, a normal sized line properly in the future but um, if you go the other way and the line's too small then it won't uh, do the self-tailing properly whatsoever because it's just too small that the teeth don't hold on to it that spring section at the top the spring ring that holds the line won't be able to hold the rope and turn it around for the self-tailing function so we can see what size rope is meant to go on the winch it's meant to be big enough to go into the self-tailing teeth and hold and not so big that they're stretched so like most of the winches on the whipbread 60 they're designed for holding a 12 mil to 16 mil line 
over 16 mil, it's getting hard to get them up into the self-tailors like in a, in, a, in a professional manner. And 10 mil, I can tell you, slips because we had some 10 mil furling lines and you couldn't even furl a, a, a flying sail, code sail, because it just would switch, it would just go round and round and round. It wouldn't self-tail. So that's only a six millimeter amount, which is like quarter of an inch. Um, with that in mind, and we think of that, what's that like on that boat, it'd be like a 12 or 14 mil rope would be perfectly sized. I can then guess how many turns the manufacturer in this, very complicated design process they went through how many turns they were expecting to be on the drum of the winch and for me i know this kind of like off by heart with the winches that i work with uh, most of the time it's going to be between six and seven turns now that sounds like quite a lot so why would the manufacturers of the winch uh think that they needed to have that many turns if they can make something that's lighter uh, more compact, you know, they can drop the gearbox down more into the, the base of the winch. They can even um, have winches, of course, which are settled right into the deck. So they're almost flush the bottom edge of them. Like there's lots of ways they could solve the issue. It's not the packaging that needs it to be that tall. It's because they want you to have that many turns on. So three turns is where friction starts to become you know, the, uh, a friend to you. Um, it can be a, a bit of a problem for people trying to pull the rope the other way. That's the classic one from the foredeck is people saying, hey, come on, release the line, release the line. You're saying, look, it's, it's only got a couple turns around the winch, but obviously there's too much friction there for them to pull it through. But with three turns on the winch, that's the point where if you have a grinder that's separate to the trimmer, either through a coffee grinder or through a winch that's being applied on a top-loaded winch, um, the grinder's efforts are then going to have some effect on the rope. And by pulling the rope as the trimmer, the grinder should be able to impart quite a lot of uh, force to the line, certainly at this early stage in the haul. And then you're going to be adding turns four, five, six, seven turns, whatever it is, to get the winch fully loaded up. Now, the manufacturer wants you to have that many turns on because the manufacturer knows what size of rope they're expecting to go into the winch. They know whether it's going to be a cruising winch or it's a racing winch, and they have a pretty good idea of what's going to be the load on the other side. And what should happen is that by the time all of the correct number of turns are on the winch uh, drum, you should have fingertip control of the line, and it doesn't really matter what happens on the other side of the winch right up to the line breaking. You should have fingertip control if the winch is fully um, stacked with, uh, with turns. The self-tailor at the top does have a locking kind of feel to it. If you only run three, four turns on a winch all the time, the self-tailor is doing quite a lot of the work, but it shouldn't really be holding any of the load. It should be, as say, fingertip, because the last part of this is you know, once you've loaded up the winch, you take it up into that feeder, up into the self-tailor, and then pull it in tight so it's securely locked into the self-tailor, and then add a safety turn to the winch by just going around the body of the winch one more time, which makes it harder for the rope to fall out the self-tailor. The reverse process is when it comes time to ease it, and you've got to get that rope out the top of the winch. And this is something I spend loads and loads of time helping people with when they come onto the boats or when they used to come on the boats, and that is that the... People know there's like a hand has to be put on the side of the drum and the other hand's working the line in the self-tailor. This is for taking the line off the winch. But there seems to be a feeling that the hand on the side of the drum is acting a bit like a, a drum brake or something and that you're holding the line on the winch with that hand that's on the rope on the drum, which is not true. If you have a lot of load on the other side of the winch, and particularly if you haven't got all the turns on, that hand is not enough to stop the, the line from coming off the winch. So the actual method is that when it comes out the self-tailor, 
you have to hold tension on the line the entire way through it coming out of the self-tailer until you go from a self-tailed winch to a manually tailed winch by a crew member. And that is, uh, if you imagine like a Fibonacci curve, your hand is quite close to the rope as it goes into the self-tailer on the winch. And then as your hand takes the line out of the winch, there's continuous outward force away from the central axis of the drum in the flat plane that the top of the winch prescribes. So you don't lift your hand up, you don't let your hand go down because otherwise you can end up in problems, particularly if your hand goes up, all the turns can come off the winch uh, way too early and you're in a, in a, in a problem. But uh, your hand goes around in the flat plane equal to the plane of the um, self-tailor. Um, and then you're continuously pulling on that line away from the central axis of the winch. And that tension is what, when you have completed that action, that's the tension, although fingertip control, that is holding through the friction of the winch all of that load that's on the other end of the line. If you don't do that, if you do have way too few turns on the winch, then you can uh, end up with, uh, you get it out self tail and then it starts to run. And if you've got four turns on a 12 mil Dyneema spinnaker sheet and it uh, starts to pull and pull and pull, that's when you can, in that moment you go, oh no, and you try to hold the rope, it pulls you the foot or two into the, the winch and then you're in the winch with it. So this is a good moment to introduce a concept which, um, I've certainly been teaching for like 20 odd years. I'm not sure if I got it from somewhere or if it's something I created for myself, but I see a distinction on a boat between two different sorts of loads which are made up onto winches, and that is short loads and long loads. And knowing which one of these two things it is is absolutely crucial to how you then handle the line as it comes to the easing process. So getting uh, on the line onto the winch, one turn, stripping turn, two turns for self, for um, tailing a winch uh, for somebody that's bringing a line in quick. Three turns is when friction starts to be applied and then four, five, six, right to the top of the winch is what's required to make the winch secure and safe. Taking the, the turns off is another area where things are problematic. You need to keep continuous tension and then you need to know like what the load is on the other side and how to react to it. If you're releasing the jib sheet in attack in a kind of like uh, racing or close to racing situation, then you're basically cowboying the, the line by spinning it off the top of the winch. And we have regatta style winches on the maxi, which don't have self a standard self-tailing mechanism at the top, which means they don't have the little feeder, which is the thing that the rope gets hooked up on when you're trying to just cowboy it off. They have completely smooth tops and they're made up with a kind of figure of eight in the top of the winch. The reality is that if you've got a, uh, a short load or a long load, you do act slightly differently with the winch. Like for me, a classic short load on the boat is a backstay. A backstay, as long as there's no other unusual circumstance going on, like an accidental jibe and the mainsail is up against the backstay, the backstay is only going to represent about, um, say, 30 or 40 centimeters, about a foot, a foot and a bit more of rope that's going to move through the winch under heavy load. And then it's basically going to go completely slack. If I take the backstay off on the boat, it's it will come off from like four or five thousand kilos loading, and then it goes to nothing instantly. Now the block may be flying around, all sorts of things. And I say if you the boom goes across and then starts to push up against the backstay, a new load can come onto the winch. But essentially, in normal operations, it's just a short movement. Same would be for the Cunningham at the tack of the mainsail when it's in a reef. Um, cars that are moving on the side decks, anything which has got a load which is very, very tight and then it goes loose and the rope, the, the rope on the winch goes from like under load and potentially dangerous to very, very safe. Um, that I would consider a short load. They're not really the ones that cause problems because even if they do suck the rope in, you're not going to get that far into the winch that you're going to be kind of like mangled in its you know machinations. The 
problem is long loads and spinnaker sheets, spinnaker halyards, the main halyard, jib sheets, um, all sorts of anything that's just going to run and keep running and running and running is the one that can then take you and you know, if your rope's wrapped around your foot or if it's wrapped around something else or that's the one that's going to create a problem. Jib sheets are the classic, you know, you'd be going towards attack and a, a, a skilled trimmer will have already taken out the self-tailor and maybe potentially taken a couple of turns off the top of the winch, reducing the number of turns to the point where it's very easy for, you know, they're holding a kind of a considerable amount of load in their hands. So then when they get to the tack, they can release those couple turns remaining off the winch very, very quickly. The classic mistake being that they overestimate how much load they can hold and then the jib starts to ease before you've gone into the tack. But um, the for these these processes, a jib sheet with certainly got enough force in it on a bigger boat to start to suck you into the, the winch. And that's the classic um, mental situation where you would be um, in a, a scenario where the rope starts to move on the winch and your instinct is that you don't want it to move because you know someone's going to shower you from the back and hey why are you easing the jib or whatever it is you know and uh, you hold on to it thinking you can hold it and then you lose the tug of war with the boat so easing it off um, if it's a short load you just put your your hand like I'm right-handed so my right hand is dealing with the line that's going to the self-tailor and then my left hand is on the side of the drum and my left hand is there to pull the rope around the winch it's going to have to slide um, against the friction material on the winch and against the natural friction of all these turns of rope and we're dragging it around if I can't drag it around and the load won't move the rope on the winch then I have to take a turn off and again you can't just flick it off using your hand as a like a drum brake you need to um, re sort of settle your hands so you can take that extra turn off the winch with it under full tension all the way around. And I say it's like a, a Fibonacci curve. Your hand starts close to the winch. And then as it goes around, it gets further and further away from the central axis of the winch because it's under tension the entire way around. And that's something you just have to kind of um, feel for yourself. Although over on Patreon, uh, forward slash the mariner, these um, seamanship videos we're doing, working with winches is something that we, we cover there in the longer exclusive videos there. So check that out if you want. Um, a few notes on winches the lower apron on most winches is about 15 degrees and it um or, or certainly it it helps to feed rope into what is the maximum up and down angle that the the line can take as it goes into a winch much more than 15 degrees above the horizontal and the rope will tend to start to climb up the turns that are already on the winch and it'll start to override um it much lower than that it can be fed up onto the winch but it may slip off if it's loose um, pulling a winch with loads of turns on it you may get away with it sometimes particularly if there's a lot of friction in the system that you're pulling through when I pull the backstays through on the boat one of the recent Mariner videos I'm showing how to jive a 85 foot boat on your own and I pull the um, the backstay in and when I do it it's got like four or five turns on it but the reason it works is because everything stays in place on the winch because of the friction as that backstay runner uh, goes through the falls of the backstay blocks. It's it's up and down. There's quite a bit of friction there, and that holds everything on the winch. But if you're trying to pull something through that's very slack, it will just start to fall down that um, sloped uh, lower apron of the winch drum, and then off the winch and onto the mounting, and then it won't it won't climb back up onto the winch. So that's worth working out on your boat. What uh, what's the maximum up and down angles? Um, certainly, when you start to freestyle with winches and start to like, um, you know you're trying to solve a problem you're trying to get something moved that's not a normal 
function of the boat, some weird mooring situation or towing situation or trying to rescue some situation on deck. And then you have things coming to winches which are not coming from a, a, a feed a normal feed from a clutch or a jammer or from a turning block, it's very easy to get override. You have to really watch that. Um, and oftentimes just a foot put on the rope so that it can pull through under your foot at the crate angle to the winch is enough to, to solve the problem before it goes into override. Um, overrides, then we can talk about that a little bit. Um, the, the thing with overrides is that just getting a light override is probably no more of a problem than just pulling the standing part of the line that's going forward to whatever the load is and just pulling a little bit of slack into it and just putting it back down into position where it should be wrapped around the drum. But if it starts to work its way in, I guess the thing to say is never think that you're going to grind an override out unless you really know the boat and you know there's loads of rope left to go. Like people will get an override in the jib and then they can see it's making its way up the, the, the winch onto the jib and they're thinking, well, it'll probably pop out by the, by the time we get to the top of the winch and then, you know, solve the problem without having to ease a jib sheet off or come back head to end or whatever. It may work. What may happen, though, is that there's not enough jib sheet. And then as you grind it in tighter and tighter and tighter, and those who've had this happen are nodding sagely at this point, you get to a point where the jib can't come any tighter and the override is absolutely banging tight on the winch. And even if you go head to wind, you still can't get it off. Even if you go and um, drop the headsail or something, you still can't get it off. It's just locked up on the winch. And it doesn't matter what you do at the winch, you're going to have to come up with a new plan. So this is a good point to discuss um, Another bit of um, handling line, which is dealing with overrides, which is how do you then get, let's let's take a worst case scenario, like a 12 mil Dyneema line, which is attached, attached to a jib and you are doing a tacking jewel and you're wondering, you know, you, you, you're wondering, okay, is that an override or not? And then you realize, yeah, it is an override and you're grinding and grinding. It's like two turns from the top, but there wasn't quite enough jib sheet to get it out. And now you've got an override right in the middle of the winch. Like, how do you deal with that? So... The thing we can bear in mind here is that, you know, if you're cruising or something, you have a lot more time to work things out. If you're on a long distance race from point A to point B, you've got time to work things out. But the basic stages will still have to happen. The load that is being applied to that line needs to be released somehow or at least held somehow. Let's say it's a jib sheet. You can always get the lazy jib sheet, run forward, get the lazy jib sheet and then thread it through the side deck turning block. Thread it through the block that you know feeds it up to the, the winch and then put it onto a winch which is nearby and just pull on that line and it will pull the, uh, the jib sheet which is in an override. It will pull a little bit of slack into it and then you've got the beginnings of a solution. So always in this situation, if you can't ease something off, um, you could just need to take the load somehow. Now, it might be, though, that there is no winch that can do that in line, that there's uh, no no movement less, the left, rather. The, 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 the jib is absolutely strapped tight and the override didn't come out as you're hoping or the sail's right at the top of its hoist and the override didn't come out. How do you then get that off? So this might be a time when having some kind of uh, trippable uh, snap shackle on the jib sheet is worthwhile. Or if you have lots of soft shackles on the boat, you can take that load onto another winch or you can just take it by tying the jib sheet off to its turning block often the you know there's very very strong the turning blocks you can tie it off there if it's not too big a boat the metal work will take it if it is a big boat you need to take something from the corner of the sail down through the turning block then down the deck and just tie it off on some appropriately strong uh, area i always have a piece of like 10 or 12 mil line on the boat about 20 foot long just i can grab it in the cockpit and, and create these solutions quickly 
bowling onto the clue of the sail through the turning block down onto a pad eye or round a winch or something and then I get my knife and I just cut through the soft shackle the soft shackle that's holding my sheet to the sail or I trip it or whatever if it's tied off then you're going to have to cut the rope off the sail which is a whole new sort of problem you may have to do that and you can just put a piece of tape around it for now and come back and whip it properly but you can cut it off if you have to um, what you may choose to do though and you may have the possibility to do is try some other technique before you're cutting things so uh, take the load in the same way or if you don't have the opportunity to take the load in the same way through whatever mechanism it's a halyard or something you can't do anything else to take the load then you're going to need to um, pull on the line with something else that's going to be able to pull equally strong and get you just that fraction of uh, a, a, a little inch of, of slack that you can get it out remember even dyneema even if you pull the dyneema halyard right up to the sheath right up tight there's still a bit of stretch in it but you have to apply a lot of force to make it happen so the first thing with that would be traditionally would be a rolling hitch and for those who've been watching the youtube channel i did one called um um, it was called like something money old money for old rope I think it was I was making sail ties out of uh, old rope sheath um, very good use for it uh, they're softer they can be the exact length for your boat they can be dedicated to task I have like 10 which I use only for the mainsail and they're not on deck for anything else preclude the issue of where are the sail ties when you're trying to tie up the mainsail at the end of the day but um, when I was doing that I was uh, sharing with people that um, the Ashley book of knots is now old enough that it's in the public uh, domain and uh, you can get a link to it from uh, the Mariner YouTube channel you can get it from the description of this podcast I'll put it in there or you can just find it online and download the PDF of um, the Ashley Book of Knots to your Kindle or to um, a computer or tablet, whatever it is, and then you've got it on board. And in there, uh, you can find a rolling hitch if you haven't used one before. It's basically a clove hitch where you start the first wrap like a clove hitch, and then you just keep doing wraps on top of itself, slowly inching its way along the line until you've got three or four of them, and then you finish up in the standard format for a clove hitch. That's a pretty it's a pretty slack explanation of how that knot works but you know bear with me this is <laughs> this is audio only so what can you say about how a knot's made but made up cleanly made up correctly snug down tight and then load pre-applied to it you can take a rolling hitch and then take it back along the line wrap it around the back of the winch that's got the override on it so that line is like literally going around that winch and then divert off to some other winch on the deck and then start to grind on that and uh, the line that you're pulling on will need to be smaller than the line that's being pulled so it can kind of bite into it a little bit and this is where you start to get into a bit of a problem with um, Dyneema and Vectran lines and, and race boats because even if you have a smaller piece of Dyneema rope or Vectran rope that you could put into that position does it have the strength to pull on that big line and pull a little bit slack into it if you're working with normally uh, polyester double braid ropes which most smaller boats under 40 foot are then the great thing is to have a piece of Dyneema rope in like if you're running 10 mil then have an 8 or 6 mil piece of Dyneema sheathed uh, rope which you can then bring out and do this job with and the Dyneema will be stronger even at that diameter than the piece of polyester that you're pulling on you can wrap it around the back of the winch take load elsewhere you won't be able to run it through the um, self tailor on the winch but just hold it with your hand and then you'll be able to pull a little bit of slack into the line and then start to work the override off the winch what we have in the racing world for this is um, we have what's called a flying jammer so again part of handling line I'm trying to stay on track with we're at the mast 
and we're dealing with the people in the cockpit. We're going to look at the other jobs on the boat. So I'm not too far away from my general schema here, but in the cockpit for that person that's working with the person at the mast, in front of them they have the piano or the pit or whatever you want to call it. But there's going to be an array of clutches, jammers, or if you're on a boat with some of them already on board, the rope jammers, which uh, you may or may not have seen, we can discuss later. But they're going to have something which stops the rope from moving. And uh, the uh, clutches have a very particular kind of usage. Clutches are such that you close it, the rope doesn't move, and then you open it and the rope can move. Super, super simple, right? You can always pull the rope in, but it can only go out if it's released. And a clutch will have some kind of camming mechanism with some little uh, teeth on it, little striations that again then uh, come down, uh, over cam onto the rope and lock it out and hold it in place. And the the piece of the, um, the cammed uh, teeth, which are going to actually interact with the rope, even on big clutches, the big Lumar clutches that we've got on the, on the bigger boats here, there's probably only about two square centimeters, like less than a square inch of actual contact between the teeth and the rope. Now, if you are forever pulling lines in to the exact same position, like reef one, reef two, or full hoist, or whatever it is, those positions of the sheath are always going to be in the jammer, and the jammer is always acting on them. And even though those things are designed to do as little damage to the rope as possible, in the end, it's going to start munching its way through the, through the line. And they can only hold a certain amount because ultimately they are compressing the core somewhat, but they're only acting on the outside. If it's a class one rope, it's a, a, a double braid polyester rope, then it's grabbing hold primarily of the exterior of the rope, which means it can it's, it's accessing 50% of the load bearing capability of the line. The core could just pull out of it if it needed to. And on a Kern mantle rope, a modern a Dyneema cord line, it's only grabbing the exterior. So it's probably only good for like 25% maybe. Most of it will be the friction on the sheath and the sheath then locking off around the core um, and then a little bit of compression on the core. But it's not going to have the ability to hold big loads without tearing the sheath right off the rope. So we have something else. And the something else is called a jammer. And jammers are just ridiculously expensive for what they are. Spinlock make the ones that I see everywhere. I'm not sure if other manufacturers do as well, but they certainly seem to be one of their core products. And um, to describe them quickly, they sit on the deck and look pretty much like a clutch, but they have a sort of triangular body with the triangle on its side. There's a little... Um, uh, like tab on the back that you pull out and it clicks and then the, the jam is in the open position and when you pull it back the jaws inside which are ceramic and um, uh, dimpled like a golf ball they are acting on the top and the bottom of the rope they're about 10 centimeters four inches long top and bottom and uh, they move inside a slide which is inside this somewhat triangular body so that as the rope uh, as the tab is released and the mechanism starts to act, it takes a light grip on the sides of the rope. And then as the rope starts to try to move forward and move off down the boat, it drags these two sets of jaws, top and bottom, into that triangular body, thereby jamming itself in there. And the only way of getting a jammer undone is to draw it on with a, a winch and then pull the tab out and pull those uh, jaws, top and bottom, out of the triangular casing and thereby relieving the, the, uh, the, the jamming effect. What you can do is you can get something called a flying jammer and they are ridiculously expensive for what they are. Instead of being bolted down to the deck in the way that a jammer or a clutch normally is, this one is attached to a piece of rope which um, you can use to 
pull on the jammer. It's a completely separate thing you can hold in your hands. It has this piece of Dyneema that comes out the back of it. And the side of the body of the jammer has been machined in such a way that it's removable. And so what you can do is, kind of like a snatch block, you can pass the line in through the side of the jammer. It doesn't have all the mechanism of a clutch. It just has these two jaws, top and bottom, and suddenly you can get your rope in from the side of it. So in your override situation, you move to a position on the line where you're free and clear to get a hold of it. You put the flying jammer onto the line that's in override. You close the casing up on the side and secure it. Then you get that piece of 12 mil Dyneema that's coming out the back of the, the body of the uh, jammer and you connect another line to it, something that can, you know, it's only short that little loop. And then you have another line on the deck and a, a tail from a sheet or something. You put that onto another winch and then you can pull on the jammer. And those jammers, certainly the ones that we use on our boats, I think they're good for 17,000 pounds, like eight tons. Um, and uh, you can get most overrides out in, in that way because you just can't use Dyneema to, to grab in on the rope. So overrides can be, um, potentially can be very, very difficult for a boat. If you've got like, I don't know, a sail stuck up because the halyard's an override and you're drifting down on the fleet or blowing down onto the rocks or as a leash or whatever, not being able to get a sail down, not being able to release something. Spinnaker sheets are the things I think that most often go into override. And there you'd be out with a flying jammer, stick it onto the sheet, connect it onto something, another winch, pull it, get the override off the um, sheet, reload it onto the winch properly, and then ease off the winch that's holding the flying jammer, and then you're good to, to pull on it again. So overrides can create problems, but primarily most of the time, it's just that it slows everything down. So three turns on the winch when you're pulling things in, it won't override, friction is starting to be applied, four turns, it will override, and um, if the, the load on the end of it is too light, it'll just all mess itself up and you can't use it anymore. So there we go, so that's the mast, that's tailing for somebody at the mast, that's operating a winch, re releasing a winch, clutches, jammers, and, th and that's, the, I'd say, uh, I can add in here as well, something which I always do with uh, the boat, um, if you've got a line that's coming in that is um, has the potential to sit on a clutch or a jammer, no problem at all. You know, that's what it's there for. It'll do it. But if it's going to be on there for any kind of amount of time, certainly for the stuff I do, which is, um, you know, we're at sea for many, many days and, you know, we jibed on a Thursday and we may tack next Saturday. Um, the rope can't just sit in those jammers. You have to, as a as an experienced line handler, you start to become aware of the fact that what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to keep those lines on the winch. And that's, you know, worth considering. There's normally a couple of pit winches. There's a couple of um, primary winches. You may have spinnaker winches as well, but they should all be full of rope all the time. Okay, I, I, I do get confused when people think that tidying up and getting the cockpit as it should be is like all the winch handles out and all the lines off the winches that don't need to be on winches and it's all coiled away. Like to me, that's a an absolute disaster, Bill. Um, like for me, like I've got these uh, coffee grinder things, right? These like pedestals in the middle of the cockpit that you, like a hand bike. Um, the the accepted knowledge from some boats would be that um, you would disengage those from the winches once the task was done. It's comparable to taking the winch handles out, right? But that means that the handles of those things are like free turning then. So if you're stumbling across the cockpit or if you need somewhere to perch whilst you're looking forward and standing on watch and all the rest of it, those handles are not going to, they're going to move. They're not in any way secure. It's not something you can save yourself with or lean against or anything else. If you leave them engaged with the winch, the winch that they're active on, the one that's probably got a jib sheet on it or a halyard or something like that, it's ready to go at any moment's notice. And um, it's solid. The handle's solid so you can grab hold of it. And I would argue strongly 
that um, leaving the winch handles in at the uh, companionway is also something else you can do for the safety of the crew. The, the counterpoint would be, well, what if something gets caught up in it, which I can only imagine would be like the the like the reefing lines or something like that but you shouldn't be reefing with the sail like in such well, i'm trying to think like there are a couple times if you're reefing beating up to windward yeah the, the the boom is pulled quite close into the boat but the reef lines are being blown off you know behind the boat they're not hanging down directly over the winches in the cockpit so i don't really feel that something's going to get caught there um once in a blue moon some weird thing you're doing will get caught around a winch handle but you know that in the face of what it can do how it can be helpful i think it's a negligible risk and what it can do and what i've seen it do on a number of occasions what i and why i'd say to do it on your bows leave the winch handles around the companionway because if you read the marine accident investigation bureau um, reports on a number of people that have gone overboard not least unfortunately the fatality in the recent newport bermuda race which was a subject to one of these podcasts just a couple of weeks ago um the gentleman that went overside there colin colin golder um he's right in the in the in the companion we're close to the companion at the front of the, the cockpit if there were winch handles in place around him not that i'm saying it would have saved anything but imagine that situation and you're about to get blown over the side of the boat by a wave or lose your balance whatever it is you can reach out and grab hold of this thing which is like designed to be held by the human hand that is a strong option and it's secured into the top of the winch like i've seen people stagger and 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 save themselves so many times by grabbing hold of winch handles which i leave at the top of the companionway not least myself and so i'm a big fan of it and i'll i'll take it on the chin from anybody that thinks it's not a good idea um let's let's go out in super heavy seas and see how you feel you know you have to kind of take that lurching gate down the cockpit from whatever's your last handhold to your next handholds around the companionway which oftentimes is not like a dedicated handle it's just whatever you grab on near near the rim of the uh the the companionway hatch or whatever having a handle right there well i think it's pretty beneficial so for me i'm all about leaving the uh, active lines on the winch the reason we do that is that if you leave it in the jammer it's four inches of the rope is continuously exposed to the compressive forces and the damage done to sheath if it's in a jammer it's just two square inches of um, of security and then it's you know the rope's going to get damaged over time if you put it if i put um a, a 12 mil dyneema line and leave it on one of my winches um the, the utility winches that i have near the companionway on the maxi i measured this recently if it's got six turns on it, it's fully made up there's two meters of rope wrapped around the winch because circumferences are always shockingly bigger than you think um that those six circumferences is two meters as opposed to it sitting in a jammer which is four in, four inches 20 centimeters so um you know six six foot against four inches it's like it's clearly not going to damage the line very much if you then want to use the winch for something else then you just yeah ease the line off ease it onto its jammer ease it onto its clutch do the job you need to do which is you know put another reef in or whatever it is and then reset the winches with all the lines so that all the winches are in use as much as possible that to me is a cockpit which is set up by somebody who sees the risk knows the rope and understands what's going to give the most utility in a, in a situation offshore i'm not saying this is how you do round the cans racing i would i would never presuppose that i know a better way of doing that because I'm, I'm not particularly experienced at that but for long-term offshore stuff um, family and friends on board that kind of thing leave the winch handles in and if anybody says to you you shouldn't do it well 
<laughs> tell them to listen to the Mariner podcast and I'll, I'll take it on with them. Okay, what else have we got about um, handling lines? We have talked about when it's in storage. We have talked about being at the mast. We've talked about tailing it, winches, jammers, working on a winch, securing lines and leaving them on the winches. What else have we got? Okay, dangerous triangles. Um, dangerous triangles are formed when a line is going round a turning block or something. The line's coming in, it's turning around the block, and then it's coming off at quite a tight angle. And the block itself is uh, holding quite a lot of the line. When rope is being diverted by a block, like the turning blocks on the side deck, they're not holding anywhere near the full um, dynamic load of the line. They're holding like a fraction of it, 25, 50%, whatever it is. If you've got a block which is then um, the ropes coming in and back out at quite a tight angle, which you get on um, backstays, some turning blocks on jibs, um, some spinnaker blocks, turning blocks for spinnakers, um, a lot greater percentage of the load that's in the line is being imparted to the securing uh, mechanism, uh, the lashing or the, the, the shackle or whatever it is of the block. And if the block gives way, then the uh, it's going to come pinging out of that corner. It's going to come from the, the apex of that triangle and it's going to come out as far as the rope will allow it to go. And what we hope, of course, is that the rope will secure it. But it can all, things can get very, very dynamic at that moment. And there might actually be forces in there which can ping all or parts of the block uh, up the, the deck towards whoever else is uh, uh, nearby so dangerous triangles firstly you need to keep your body out of them there are some places on some boats where you can sit where if the block gives way you're going to get hit by it there are some uh, activities that go on on some boats some hauling in processes where people are standing uh, you know with their legs either side of a rope which I, I don't think I need to say is a, a really bad idea for very obvious reasons but you can still be in a situation where some mechanism of the, the of what you're doing um yeah backstays always comes to mind like when they're coming down onto the deck and then going onto high field levers or going onto winches that if you're still in the wrong position and it blows then it's um it's going to hit you and it's going to hit you with huge force so um those the kind of things can be negated by a good design of the boat um they can be negated by there being extra safety lashings uh, on that block or in that situation. If you go to the Mariner YouTube channel, I think it's number eight from well, a couple of years back now, like 2019 or something. Um, I make up lashings there and I use those lashings to secure backstay blocks on Volvo 60s, open 60s, made up in a six or eight mil Dyneema. They'll hold, you know, 20 tons. Like the four stay load on the uh, open 60 is 26 ton is the rupture strength on it. So it uh, can hold huge loads with the lashings with Dyneema. Um, don't try and do what I'm saying to do with Dyneema with a polyester line because it will blow out. But um, you can take something which is mechanically attached via a shackle, via whatever kind of pinning system. And then you can add, in some occasions, extra lashings to further secure that. And then if you really are concerned about it, you can go further than that and take your security loop up the sides of the uh, block itself and over the top of the block between the incoming and outgoing line and back down the other side secure it in whatever way seems best to you. And then if uh, the actual rollers of the block give way, uh, the main axle of the block gives way and it comes pinging out, then again, you are secured from getting hit by that. So dangerous triangles are worth considering. Um, I guess this is a, a good point to to say, you know, it's, it's a good idea to go around a boat and forever have this critical eye on whether things are the way that they should be. So you're looking at whether it's as designed, 
set up in the way that it's meant to be set up. It's uh, not fractured. It's not corroded. It's not damaged. It's not, you know, it's everything's working as it should. That's the critical eye on a boat. Sometimes that can extend to seeing things which are a little bit more uh, of a hidden risk, like a, a dangerous triangle or something that can ping and hit somebody unexpectedly. Um, there's a picture of the Maxi Longobardo, one of the ones that we were looking to, to buy last summer. And um, she, there's a wonderful picture out there somewhere. If you look up long, just Longobardo, L-O-N-G-O-B-A-R-D-O, um, beautiful boat. There's a fantastic picture of her with the guy from her backstay about 10 or 12 feet in the air. So unfortunately, something had gone wrong. I think one of the backstay blocks blew or something. I don't know the exact story off the top of my head. The mast is coming down. And of course, one of these um, nautical photographers is alongside in a rib, as they always are. They've captured the moment where the mast is coming down, but incidentally caught what was the explosive repercussions for the person on the backstay position, who is, say, like 10 feet or more above the back deck of the boat, and I believe came down and unfortunately damaged his nose, broke his nose or something when he came back down, but luckily landed on the deck um, and, and wasn't too much damaged other than that could have been really really bad as you imagine but it's a moment where you can sort of see what forces are at play there and um, I don't think that's the way it's going to kind of go down on most 35 or 40 footers but can it smack you and break bones can it can a piece of the boat uh, unexpectedly give way and cause serious injury absolutely so looking around your boat looking at how things are set up looking with an eye to safety is always very very wise because uh you know, certainly with older boats now, many people will be sailing boats which are built in the 70s and the 80s. Things have been changed. Things have been wiggled around and changed. And you may not necessarily be aware of the fact that uh, huge loads are being imparted to something which is perhaps past its sell-by date and may explode towards you. I think that's the kind of thing which you do start to get through time with having more experience with um, handling lines is you just you can see rope systems you there's that old phrase that you've got to learn the ropes and that literally comes from tall ships like everything comes from sailing right but um the way that the lines came down from the masts on those boats as they came down to starboard came down to port came down on the main must came down on the foremast those rails it's not random it's it's just as regularized as clutch brake accelerator on your car um, these things are set out in such a way that the people on deck can learn the ropes and then transfer that skill to other vessels. And there'll be idiosyncrasies, of course. And But on the whole, you know, we get the word ship from a particular rig of commercial vessels that was popular at the end of the 19th century. A ship was seen as being one that was exceptionally good at doing long trade wind routes and had an upwind ability and was a well-known you know solid kind of part of the uh, it's like the toyota corolla of its day the ship but it became so synonymous with big ocean going vessels that we just then started calling all ocean going vessels ships where of course there were ships and barks and brigantines and all these things back in the day but um, once you knew the ropes for a ship you could step on board and kind of like go to work on the first watch you didn't you didn't need to like stand there and look at the the the, the webbing of the that the spiders are run up the mast as it might appear to us now going on board one of those things but for each of those people that worked in those um, environments, they would all know each job on the boat and then have a critical eye for all parts of the boat. And I think I talked about that in one of the recent videos when I'm um, 
coming out of the UK and starting to power the boat up. First, I just put the jib up and just sailed for like an hour with just the jib up. The boat had not been used in a month. We'd be doing all sorts of maintenance stuff. And I just spent time, you know, as I before I even leave the dock, I check the steering, I check the operation of the engine, the gearbox. We leave the, 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 the safety of the harbor and we make sure, obviously, before we go that everything's secure. And then we're on deck and we're watching all the various elements that are going on on deck and we just put the jib up and we make sure it's okay. And then I go and put the main up a little bit, just put a few um, you know, reefs in and, uh, and kind of watch how everything's going, make sure it's all cool, make sure there's no problems, and then start to power up and power up until we're using the code zero and the, the code five and the, the flying headsails. And we build that up slowly over time. So uh, not, there's not a we, it's, it's an I on this occasion, but when I am doing that, I'm doing it because I can just narrow down my critical eye to just looking at one set of rope systems and making sure everything's as it should be. And then when I know it's right, then I can move on to the next one. I don't have to have that whole kind of universal aspect going on where I'm looking at everything all at once. If you haven't worked all the different jobs on the boat, if you don't know all the different parts of the boat, it's impossible for you to have a critical eye. It's very difficult for you to understand what's happening at other ends of the boat. Like all four deck people on all boats everywhere um, in the disgruntled four-deck workers union it's just how it is they're always got something wrong with them right and uh, they wish that every single person sitting on the side of the boat hiking was a four-deck worker because then they would know to not sit on the sheets that need now pulling around to the spinnaker gears on the other side the shout of get off the rope or bum cleats or whatever it is on your boat is absolutely the norm but for me, when I go and sit on the side deck, I can be kind of critical of the situation around me and recognize the spinnaker sheet is behind my knees. And then if it starts to move, I need to let it go or get it up into a position where I'm not uh, cleating it off, you know? I can be critical and therefore safer because I know each job on the boat. I've got time. But uh, rope is one of these things which is able to give us what we what we take from sailing, the joy, the pleasure, the comp- competition, the travel, the whatever it is. It happens because of rope, and yet rope is my great like hate on board the boat. And uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but the Open 60, when it goes to sea with a 100-foot mast, a 3-to-1 main halyard, 2-to-1 halyards on everything at forward of the mast, um, plus all of the uh, sheets, every sheet, even the jib sheets are made up long enough to be spinnaker sheets, i.e. that it could be one side of the spinnaker is three quarters away down the boat on one side and the sheet reaches right forward right around the forestay all the way back to the cockpit plus tail on the other side so every rope is really long on the boat and they can on some occasions if you've just started an event or you've just had to do some like the worst time for it is when you're in like the doldrums and you're going from a1 and full main to uh, staysail and three reefs because you're going through big squalls, right? Or if you're off South America and you've got the risk of pamperos, you know, it's going to be a 50 knot squall and then there's nothing for three hours. They're dry squalls, you can't see them on radar. So you're constantly going from huge sails to tiny sails, huge sails to tiny sails. And you can end up where there's all this rope is in the cockpit with you and the cockpit on that boat's only like I don't know, it was like four and a half feet by six feet, something like that. You can end up with like rope halfway up your calves. And if you're not good at handling rope, if it's, I, I remember in the, the podcast version that I recorded last time, I went rambling off about the fact that um, rope is kind of like having a baby. <laughs> and I think that's, that's, I always say it's like a snake's wedding, but it's more kind of like a, a nursery of, uh, of one-year-olds. 
it requires your absolute 100% undivided attention. And if you get it wrong, it can go horrifically wrong. If you don't look after your baby and it crawls out the back door, you know, things are very, very badly wrong. It can bring you huge amounts of joy, but it just requires your absolute constant attention the whole time. The way that ropes are, are flaked into the cockpit bags, the way that ropes are secured down below decks, the, the rope as it goes to all the different turning places on the, the mast and it's holding things up. And it's like, it requires absolute attention. And after a while, <laughs> which I guess is where I'm at, I'm kind of like, really? Really, can't we, you know, can't we do things with lasers or something that, uh, that secures the sails? I don't know what that would be exactly. Tractor beams holding the sails in so I don't have to deal with all this rope which I guess is something I should mention here is like, how do you store things away in the cockpit bags? As we've discussed, um, we now run in a different way than perhaps uh, ships did hundreds of years ago. We don't want to be just trailing around with all these ghosts of sailing past that we're adhering to for no reason. Don't coil the lines and put them in the cockpit bags. <laughs> it doesn't work. If the boat starts to pull on what's in the cockpit bag, it'll make a massive mess and just drag out all the other ropes and then knot itself before it goes to the turning block or the, the jammer. We know this, right? I don't have to tell you that. But um, there is a way you can do it where it makes it super easy to stow it, super easy to get it out, makes it super workable. And all it is is that you fold the rope, but then you don't do those securing wraps that you would do if you're putting it away long term. You just fold it backwards and forwards over your hand and then take it, drop the tail of it into the bag and then kind of fold it down on top of itself. So it's ended up being a folded hank of rope in your hand and then it's been kind of doubled over as it went down into the cockpit bag you just do a little strata of rope in there with the things most likely to get used at the top your jib sheets spinnaker sheets whatever your reef lines and then things which are going to be much further unused halyards down at the bottom of the bag but in that configuration with them folded in the hand the rope is neutral so it has no desire to twist and i guess okay what we can mention here is like how does rope not there is a skill, uh, so I think, have we covered like how to put things into a bag, fold the rope and then fold it in half and put it in the cockpit bag. That's that, right? So how does rope get knotted? Um, uh, there are actually, there is a skill set of getting knots out of rope, okay? I don't know what's the worst knotted rope you've ever come across. Like, um, okay, I could throw in a little piece of light line handling uh, uh, knowledge here that might, there's, there's a, you have to have on board the boat little messenger lines that you use to pull out and put in halanders, uh, halanders, <laughs> halyards, right? Messenger lines for halyards, halanders. Um, you have to have that on board and depending on the side of the boat, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be enough to go up the mast and back down to the deck at a minimum and if you can, through all the turning blocks and the jammers and everything else, you really can just pull the rope out and then this line goes through and then when you're done with whatever you're doing with the rope, repairing it or whatever or changing it, you can pull it back through and it's absolutely back where it was. To make that happen, you're going to have to have minimum 100 foot of line. And for me, on the boats I'm on, if it's going up and down, you have like 300 foot of line. So what's the best line to use? Um, in, in all cases, it needs to be something that is breakable. Don't don't put Dyneema line up the, up the mast, right? There's a couple of exterior um, situations where you can do it, things called frazzle lines, which are for pulling down um, jib halyards which have, and, and spinnaker halyards, which have skied themselves uh, in a race. And there's an exterior system we can uh, talk about on another occasion for pulling them back down from the top of the mast without someone having to go up there. But... Um, Apart from frizzle lines, don't put Dyneema through the mast as a messenger system because if it gets jammed and sometimes what will happen with the messenger lines is through whatever 
methodology, they will end up getting down the side of the sheaves. There is a, a millimeter or two available uh, down the side of the sheaves in the mast. And if you if something goes wrong and it gets stuck in there and it's dyneema, you can't get it out. Um, you, you are going up the mast for it. But if it's something quite small, like a, a thin VB cord or something, it's perfect. You can just break it. The breaking strain on VB cord is uh, like power cords, like 50 kilos. So you can, you can break it with a winch, you break it with your... You knew a rigger once who could break it with his hands, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, so um, how do you store that 100 foot of line on the boat so it's always ready to go? Now you think, well, okay, don't coil it. No, absolutely not. Um, you could wrap it around something. Well, that's not too bad. You can end up with this big kind of like sausage of line. And if it ever gets loose, it'll all start falling off one end of it. I've seen a really clever method where you have like a pop bottle and you, you shove the line down into the pop bottle and then it's always kind of like ready to go like a heaving line or a throw line. Um, but the problem is it takes forever to feed it into the neck of the bottle. So what I found on um, Challenger when I went to see on her, bearing in mind that the previous um, crew was a uh, Whitbed crew from 1996 led by Russ Fields. This is a very uh, you know skilled set of people. And what they had is, you know those little um, like... Uh, how do I describe this thing? You know the things you use for going jigging for crabs? It's got like, it's kind of square, made of wood. It's got two um, two longer sides on it and then two cross braces and then the rope is wrapped around and the, the longer sides hold all the rope in place. Is that, does that make sense? They're like those little hand lining things. It's like that and it's got, uh, and it's but it's big. It's like two foot from top to bottom and probably... Uh, that's like 60 centimeters and then like 30 or 40 centimeters like a foot and a bit across it's big 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 frame this thing it's kind of like where do i put this inside the boat but once you realize how useful it is you you find a place so you put this light vb line round and round and round and round, and round like it's a, a crab fishing gear setup um, and then when you want to pull it off you have two holes drilled in the center of those two side pieces into which you insert two phillips screwdrivers and you just stand on deck and uh, the person that's, you know, standing on deck and dispensing the line to so someone who's probably up the mast or the line's being pulled through, you just hold those two Phillips screwdrivers. This thing just rotates around on its central axis and the rope, uh, the little line comes off and goes off through the system and then you're able to take your line out. And when you want to retrieve the line, it's super easy to wrap it around this thing. It never gets knotted. It never makes a mess of anything. It's on and off the frame super easily. And if it gets damaged or needs breaking, you just put a little uh, uh, reef knot in it, remake the line and, and keep on going. So it's kind of like a little bit disposable, a little bit breakable. You can cut it off if it's just inside the boom and put the frame down below. And then later on, just tie that back together. The knots won't get stuck anywhere. But um, it's a really good way of handling that light line. So it's always ready to go. Um, the thing that allows you to drop it down inside the mast and get it down from the sheath at the top of the mast to the mast exit easily is a piece of bicycle chain. You need like about 10 centimeters of bicycle chain, which will rust like bilio on the boat if you're not careful with it. And you, you know, just put a load of dry lube on it. But you tie that onto the end of the, the light line and down it goes. It finds its way down on the big boats because we've got so much carve, curve in our masts and so much rake in the mast. Dropping something down on the sheaths at the front of the mast, it'll end up finding its way like it's coming down behind the mainsail track. And that means it's getting caught on every single one of the bolts that's going through the mainsail track, securing it to the mast. So the chain will find its way through there where a, uh, a bolt or a nut or something like that is, is going to get jammed up or on the spreader roots or something. And then to find it inside the mast, it's always going to be on the aft edge of the mast because of the way the rake in the mast works. You have a piece of um, 
uh, coat hanger and you just kind of reach inside and grab and scrape the inside of the mask until you find that piece of land line and it's super easy to hear it coming down because a jiggle of the line at the top of the mast will rattle the um, bicycle chain um, even if it's in uh, open air hanging straight down it'll still jiggle and you'll be able to hear it and work out where it is relative to the mast exit so right where are we up to um, let's have a think now so the the h is for handling line as i realized on the first couple times going through on this podcast it's an expansive subject and so i'm not gonna be able to get into everything now we've done the uh mast we've done the cockpit we've done backstays dangerous triangles winches jammers cleats um numbers of turns on winches absolutely um let's have a look at the bow and let's have a look at uh mooring and anchoring and I think we'll be pretty good there not mooring sorry coming alongside a dock that's a that's a good one where line line work is really important and we'll finish off with <laughs> securing securing to a cleat which seems to be a very contentious area of sailing um, <clears throat> okay so the the bow the people that are on the bow are often people who've got the most line handling uh, abilities um, they are looking up the rig they are untwizzling uh, spaghetti that they've created up the top of the mast um, it sometimes obviously it can be like a, a maypole dance up there but someone who's got good coherent understanding of um, where everything goes on the front of a boat is a massive asset and I think when you're new to sailing it's too easy to go man I'm never going to know that you know but everything on a boat is actually really super simple anything like extraneous has already been stripped out by 5,000 years of history so it probably is quite simple if you can get in and just get someone who can explain it to you in like a, a little nucleus of like this not that they get as I am just rambling on and on for hours but they can say look this is how this goes it normally starts with understanding how to put the spinnaker sheets onto the boat like they go they go that way and then they go forward okay cool and then where they connect at the front and then the gear has to go to this side of the boat then that side of the boat and then okay then there's a spinnaker pole if you've got a symmetric setup and that's going to be here and you have to work out on your boat like where things go what are the fair leads and then start to work out what's the sequence of each event if you're going to peel the kite what goes up first what comes down last where the loads are going to be and people that work on the foredeck members of the foredeck workers union disgruntled um, they uh, become over time masters of uh, knowing exactly how to pull on lines how to secure lines how to um, handle loads on lines where to stand where not to stand and if you can getting some time on the foredeck of the boat is very very good for your overall awareness of of the lines on the boat most of the lines that are in action on the boat are going to the mast or the foredeck there's not that much really going on uh it, the important some important things like the main sheet and the traveler and the backstays and what have you are happening down the back of the boat but pretty much everything else is going to somewhere forward of the of the cockpit um, and spending time there and getting a critical eye for what's going on in that area makes you a better sailor overall and again the uh the harkin catalogs i have uh, mentioned this in previous um podcasts but if you can get hold of uh, like you're up to date or even a couple of years out of date uh harkin and lumar catalogs they give uh loads of ideas of um, rope systems and how to string things together and they're almost like trying to demonstrate how to use their gear which makes them a fantastic resource for learning what the gear can do so if you can go to the chandlery grab an old lumar or harkin catalog and you'll find there's all these descriptions and diagrams and things that can really like clarify a few more complicated systems you might find on the boat um the ashley book of knots is also very good at that showing um 
blocks and takels and different gun whips and, and, and purchase systems and understanding like um, where the mechanical advantage is and uh, where things can potentially go wrong if you stood in the wrong place. So um, the foredeck uh, on, on most boats, if you're going racing, it can be a pretty chaotic place. You know, just being safe out there, uh, just standing up and, and being on the foredeck can be hard enough sometimes, making sure you're clipped on, of course, all the time. Um, but working the lines there is a great way to get much better at understanding uh, what's really happening on the boat. And then when you can take that knowledge back to the cockpit and then start interacting with the an experienced foredeck uh, person then then things can really start to fly because you know okay they need it locked off now now they need it to ease and two turns on the winch they can't pull against and they're going to need to pull 20 foot so i need to get this out the bag beforehand otherwise it's going to get snagged in the bag when they try and pull it it just makes everything so much easier so much better so i can't really get here into the details like every line handling situation on a boat but i would say is that if you get the opportunity go and uh and most there's a particular kind of person that works on the foredeck and i think that they're happy to share things i feel there's quite a youthful feel to the mentality of someone who works on the foredeck you know they're getting bounced around thrown around spraying their face all the rest of it there's a there's an adventurous spirit there even if they may be disgruntled but um they're normally quite good at at, at teaching you stuff and um you know then obviously during your career you end up coming off the bow and working down until you get to the back of the boat and get to hold on to the backstay which is what we're all aiming for in this don't we don't we know um okay so uh let's talk about um bringing the boat alongside a uh, a pontoon or a jetty or something like that discounting anything to do with how we park the boat and fendering up and the rest of the stuff um oh there's one thing i'll say about fenders which is that fenders should always be attached by um around turn and two half hitches and if possible they should be attached to the lower guard wire the if you put them on the upper guard wire and then the boat ends up sliding down the dock they will slide to the stop to the top of the next stanchion the next stanchion that they're heading towards as the boat slides along with the with the fender up against the dock and when they get there they'll start to interact with the top of the stanchion and they will have enough leverage to potentially bend or damage or rip the stanchion out of its mounts if it's on the lower guard wire there's a lot less um, leverage available and you're much less likely to um, to get into a, a pickle remember also that your bottom guard wire is the one that definitely absolutely must be completely secured because if you're hiking for racing it's the one the entire crew is hanging against so you can always be sure that it's the strongest one uh, because if it's a race boat because people have been leaning against it recently which makes it a good option to tie your fenders onto the round turn and two half itches you need to be able to release the fender if it gets jammed in such a way. I've had this a couple times. Um, once on the vertical piles of a traditional jetty here in Nova Scotia, meant for a more kind of commercial boat. One of my big fenders got stuck in there as we were kind of sliding the boat down the 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 the, the dock to the exact position for the lines for the for the ropes to be attached for 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 mooring the boat for securing the boat and uh, it got stuck in the vertical and was the, but we couldn't like stop the movement we had to keep going but luckily the line was attached with a round turn two off itches which you can release under pressure the problem is if you've got a fender which is attached with a clove hitch which is very very common you can't get it out under pressure even if you put a slip on it you can't get it out under pressure so clove hitched fenders on the top rail of a boat is a great way of identifying that no one has ever had that problem which is great maybe they are so good at parking that it's just never an issue for them but if they if they've got any sense you get it as low down as you can to minimize leverage and you attach with a round turn two off itches so you can get it off easy um, aside from that though 
The lines on the dock is a great area of line handling. And this is where we do cross over still with the remaining amount of line handling in the uh, Mon Merchant commercial world. There's been a change there for shipping lines that can afford it, where they've stopped using the polypropylene, nylon, polyester, whatever it is, lines that they were using for their uh, securing lines for the boat, for the docking lines. And they now have lines which, whilst the tails may be in the cheaper material, the bit that's actually taking up the load and securing the ship in the last section of the operation is Dyneema. And the reason for that is that the characteristic of Dyneema is such that it has around 4 or 5% stretch, which means that even as you bring it up to its breaking strain, which is massive and already a benefit to the shipping you know, conglomerate that, it, that the lines are the stronger themselves, they're not going to break. But um, that last part... It's um, once it's on the winch and it's on the dock and the ship or some maneuver starts to pull very heavily on it and get it close to its braking strain, it is only increased in length by about 4%. 4% means there's not that much kinetic energy stored inside the line, which means you don't get the explosive recoil. If you want to see an example of this, um, easy to find online, uh, docking lines, mooring lines, whatever, uh, recoil, polyester, these are the kind of... Um, uh, search terms you need to put in and you will see that when they go unfortunately there are a lot of fatalities attached to this over the over the course of time and a lot of injuries as well um but if you're in the the line of fire which can be like on the other side of uh of a um uh what's it called oh my god a fair lead my brain's starting to melt now we're two hours in if you're on the other side of the fair lead it can still whip back up through the fair lead hard enough to injure somebody but oftentimes it comes over the bulwark of the ship and unfortunately wipes somebody out and that's the end of that but when you've got um, a nylon, a polyester line, you've got 20% stretch. There's huge kinetic uh, uh, forces built up in the line, which are going to explode out of the line when it finally breaks. Not so with Dyneema. And um, there's a, a YouTube channel, I believe, called How Not To. And it's a guy that does um, slacklining and climbing. And he does a lot of like breaking carabiners, breaking knots, breaking hitches. And he does it all with this hydraulic draw, which he then films and gives you all the detail. And he does it all with Dyneema climbing rope because that's his thing. He does done a few on like climbing, uh, sailing issues. But when it breaks, you'll see the polyester line, poing, like pings back massively. And the Dyneema line essentially kind of just lies down. It's why Dyneema line is now being used more and more in 4x4ing and, and big off-road recovery systems by cranes, by all sorts of situations because metal cable can be replaced by Dyneema. That's its original usage in uh, South Africa being used for those very, very deep diamond mines and the, the, the cables that they were using, the rope cabling to, to hold the um, carriages that sent people up and down into the depths of these mines. It was getting to the point where just the weight of the cable itself going down so far would break the, the cable at the pit head. So they changed to using Dyneema, which is five times stronger weight for weight than steel. It, its benefit also in an industrial situation is that it doesn't ping back. So in a 4 by 4 recovery situation or a crane situation, there isn't the added danger of something breaking and then recoiling into people. So being aware of the lines you've got and being aware of recoil, which also, of course, would be an issue when you're being towed, um, but um, and the forces that can be applied. I remember watch watch. I remember once watching a super yacht about 100. It might have been a 110 foot jumbo azimuth um, trying to park alongside at the fuel dock in um, Palma in uh, the Balearic Islands, and um, it took so long this this docking maneuver. The, the breeze was off the dock, off the fuel dock, so the boat came in and looked like it was going to do a normal docking maneuver, and then it missed and it missed. 
and it missed. On like the fifth go around, I went down and stood talking to the guys on a maxi that was behind us, Alfa Romeo, I think it was. And we ended up putting up like putting up bits of paper with numbers on. We watched the frustration and embarrassment, I'm sure, of the people on the azimuth. But uh, they were just trying so hard to dock the boat. And for whatever reason, the per- I think it was the owner was driving and the captain was stood next to the owner. That's the kind of feeling I got on the flybridge. But at one point, they got the bow of the boat close enough to the fuel dock that a line was transferred and then put onto the uh, cleat on the fuel dock, at which point this thing goes astern. It was a couple of thousand horsepower now pulling backwards on this uh, probably inch, inch and a half mooring line. And bang, it went off. And it went off that hard that it damaged the... the um, uh, stainless steel it bent the stainless steel safety rail around above the fair lead on the on the bow of the boat it was just this a massive bang and you're not often going to get that on a yacht when you're trying to like park it but big forces can be applied to ropes which are a little bit older and then they start to ping and break and you can end up getting injured so the the lines which are going to be going ashore in any normal situation um i did a video recently where i was docking the 80 footer and um uh, on my own and i was saying uh, throw all the lines ashore because you're unlikely to get back on the boat. And one of the responses I got was that uh, a, a midship spring is a f- should be the first line ashore. And I would immediately say, maybe. You know, if you're in a situation where the wind is um, about to blow the bow off, the first line that needs to be ashore is the bow line. Yeah, for me on a boat I've got, there is more hydraulic uh, drag in the keel and the rudder stopping the hull from moving. There's hardly anything forward of the keel. And with a rolled up forestay, uh, rolled up sail on the forestay, there's so much windage there that the boat will rotate around the keel and the bow will blow off. So actually many times it's the bow I want to get off, particularly when I'm bringing the nose of the boat in. And then if it gets blown off quickly, the rest of the maneuvers finished, right? So it may be the bow line. There is the trick you can do solo where you put a midship spring on and then you can keep driving the boat forward. If you're in a little boat, which is kind of manhandleable, like 35, 40 foot, you can yeah jump off, get that on, kind of hold on to the boat and then jump back on it. But I have to kind of work lines as in a bit of a different way because like the Maxi's, you know, 100 foot, 120 foot mast, 25 ton. It's uh, probably still moving somehow it's very unlikely it's just going to stop dead alongside the dock and they've got to jump off and start to choose which line needs to go ashore and be secured quickly enough so coming into the scenario it might be that you want your stern line on and then when it gets secured the boat will come up against the dock it may be that you want the bow line on stop the bow blowing off or it may be indeed that you have the opportunity to put a line on which emanates from a position about one third of the way forward on the boat leads aft and then you can just drive forward gently on it and use the rudder to parallel the boat against the dock but whatever's your method think through what's the worst case scenario and then get the line on which precludes that scenario as early as possible right so um cleats are an interesting one i saw a, a really really well um uh viewed video uh you know i'm only i'm only jealous that people have these successes so there's nothing in it but uh it was someone showing a um a cleat hitch which i'm not even sure there is something called a cleat hitch the first thing to recognize is that there's no historical uh there's no historical cleat hitch because when you've got um lines which are natural fiber they swell when they're wet so if you make up something and put a locking hitch onto a cleat it definitely didn't come from the history of sailing and natural fibers because when that dried out it'd be so locked on you'd never get it off so there's no historical cleat hitch this thing was like a round turn around the bottom of the cleat and then come up and uh locking hitch on one side and locking hitch on the other side you're essentially kind of making a clove hitch across the two ears of the cleat 
Um, and there was, oh, just a, a, a raft of really wonderful comments below it. Thank you, Captain, for this wise and decisive maneuver. And we will follow you through thick and thin. And I thought, man, life, firstly, there's nowhere near enough friction in that for anything that I would want to do with it. My boat would just pull that straight through. Um, if you were trying to get it off and there's actually a blow on, good luck with that because you've got the wrap around the bottom of the cleat, which is good practice, but then you've got two locking cleats, which means that as soon as you've managed to get the, the first locking uh, hitch off, the second locking hitch, as soon as it's released, that line's in motion. So I personally would never lock something off with, with such a, uh, a simple benign uh, hitch on a cleat. I was always, the first thing is that you must bring the line in um, and wrap it around the correct side of the cleat. So you want to bring the uh, it in so it's got as uh, as open angle as possible. You don't want it like doubling around the uh, on itself with a really tight uh, angle from wherever you're leading it from. You want to bring it in onto the side of the cleat where it's got a, a nice clean fair lead, a nice clean lead that's fair into the cleat, and then uh, wrap it round. It's normally clockwise, but there may be situations where it's not clockwise. You may be going onto the outside of the cleat and get starting off anti-clockwise, but you very quickly get into putting something on that's going to have the friction that's going to hold the boat. And that is figures of eight on, on a normal cleat. And there should be three of them. Three is a magic number, as the song says. It's the same on the, the winches. It's the same on the cleats. You need three of them. There was one time when I worked on the uh, Challenge 67 when we had the uh, benefit of having an ex-Challenge employee in Hong Kong who could give us like how it's meant to be done by the company that designed the boats and they would do OXO which was round the bottom of the cleat and then a figure of eight and then round the cleat again but it was very much because of the size of cleats that had been specced and the size of the octoplat mooring lines which were on it it wasn't really a function of what's best it's just what would actually fit onto the cleat but uh, full round turn around the bottom of the cleat don't come just half around the bottom of the cleat and then go into figures of eight because once you've released the locking elements of what is on the cleat you have no protection from what's next and you really need to have that round turn around the bottom if you're going to be adjusting this cleat when there's load on it. So round the bottom of the cleat, three figures of eight, and then you can, on modern lines, put a locking hitch on it. By the time there's three figures of eight on it, it's going to hold a battleship, so it's not going to be moving. So you probably just bring it down, do like a wrap around the bottom of the cleat again. So it's like a full wrap, three figures of eight, and then another full wrap. Okay, so I say mooring lines, I can't get into, oh, just <laughs> draw myself a little bit. I had to uh, break off there for a second. I have a very friendly cat who likes to climb up on the uh, on the desk here and uh, interact with me. I think on a few different uh, occasions in the past, people have heard the purring in the background as uh, Charlie comes and sits on the desk, but he's, um, <laughs> he can get so insistent that he's all over the keyboard and then the, uh, the podcast gets wiped. That's a story I'll have to tell another day. But anyway, um, mooring the boats... Um, no, uh, sorry, parking the boat uh, uh, and, and getting your uh, lines ashore and uh, securing yourself is something which is hugely, it is syncretic. Um, when it's getting into heavy weather and the boat is bouncing around a lot at the dock, there's one thing I can share with you that I knew the crew of a professional race boat that when they were in a, um, a marina in Mexico, the uh, uh, dock master was telling them that there's a hurricane coming in. It happened many times before and he gave them some advice about what they should do and not do. And he was kind of told to go and uh, jump in the ditch and that they knew much more and that they would handle the situation. In the end, the only two boats in the marina which were damaged were the harbour master's boat and he uh, it got swamped as he was going around helping 
the other boat that was lost, which was the race boat that we described. And um, it uh, it all went horribly wrong because they had secured themselves with Dyneema mooring lines, which the Dyneema was transmitting so much of the force to the securing points on the boat that they started to break the cleats. They started to break on the dock. There's no cleats on a race boat. They started to uh, break the pad eyes off the boat. They started to snap the mooring lines and the uh, the boat ended up uh, like flipping over at the dock, dismasting itself, breaking off its bowsprit and um, causing, a, a you know, a great risk to those who are involved in trying to save it of course you can't use Dyneema for mooring lines um, and you shouldn't anyway because it's like you know it's super expensive and uh, you can use cheap line which will be better at the job for doing something like uh, mooring the boat when a boat's uh, alongside the dock and secured it shouldn't be tied in so very very tight that it starts like jogging around and transmitting big forces to the boat if you're on a boat at a dock and it's kind of like lurching and hard hard stops the mooring lines are too tight or they're not um, they're not balanced in, in a way that they perhaps could be. It might be better to put some more lines on, have a bit of slack in all of them so that they can all take some of the, the suspension task over and the boat's not being subjected to those uh, to those forces. We call that um, throttling the boat when it's uh, you've, you've tied it so tight to the dock that it's kind of like shaking and, and trying to get itself broken free of the dock. Trying to deal with boats in those situations is, is a big education. I can remember being in... Um, Oh man, not Alicante. Where was it? Acapulco. And uh, in there, the the way that it comes in there, there's a big storm coming in, and we escaped into the um, the marina of the Acapulco Yacht Club. And uh, it's uh, a big bay which has a seiche in it. S e i c h e. It's a, a a tidal stream or a wave that runs around the perimeter of a of a bay. And um, and what happens in there is that the waves come in from the uh, Pacific, they make their way into the bay, and then they're kind of funneled around and into the area where the yacht club is. And the yacht club is made out on a big concrete dock, which is on piles. So although it's got like patios and swimming pool and uh, plants and all the rest of the stuff you'd expect outside some fancy yacht club, it's actually all set into a big like commercial dock made out of concrete and the water is underneath it. Now there are big vent holes built into it so that uh, pressure can be released underneath when this wave makes its way around. But in a big storm, there are jets of water coming out sequentially out of these holes as the waves run round underneath the concrete area, which is the front end of the yacht club. Meanwhile, the boats which are in their pens out on the, uh, on the, the jetty system, I have never seen a boat move around more in there than watching challenger the whitbread 60 jog around in there during a, a hurricane that we were we'd escaped it at sea and gone into into this area and she was literally probably moving like 10 feet 10 and that's with lines made off you know two three four bow lines two three four stern lines made off to a pen that she's in and they said to me don't make it too tight she's just going to have to jog around in there and i had someone from the yacht club come down and look at her like no it's fine it's fine it's fine so what we did is we made all of the actual uh, lines um, out of uh, the normal, you know, uh, nylon mooring line, no problem at all. But then we added extra Dyneema, which was slack enough that it would never be in use unless the uh, nylon line broke. And none of them broke. It wasn't an issue. But then Dyneema was there as a backup in case it did. It was there as a kind of like final safeguard. So that's one time when you perhaps would use it. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, that's, that's the time when I think most people get their biggest exposure to the biggest loads on a boat and the lines comes when you're working with an anchor or with a parrot anchor. So 
let's let's have a chat about those. Anchoring is something which we've talked about uh, already on this uh, podcast. In was it A's for anchoring? I feel like it was quite a few years ago now, but um, the uh, we'll probably go through it many times again. You know, but you've got your anchor out. You've uh, you've secured everything the way it should be. You've got a, a chain out and then you, it makes onto a, a, a road uh, a rope road of the correct diameter line the correct manufactured type of line probably a, a nylon um, or, or maybe polyester uh, 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 laid line and you've got stretch in that line and you've got the catenary of the curved uh, anchor chain underwater and all those things that we know about and yet it can still be that the line on deck is under mega forces when it's uh, when it's uh, the boat's moving around, and if the boat starts shearing at its anchor, um, the forces can be multiplied by seven or eight times. So as the boat shears off one way and then comes up short on the anchor chain or the anchor road, and then turns itself around and starts zooming off in the other direction, it's really wandering around at its uh, mooring. It needs a riding sail or it needs the main, the uh, the rudder securing the forces can be massive they're big enough to break the uh, the the road or break the uh, chain some occasions but if you start trying to interact with those you're going to see rope at it's probably the maximum forces you'll ever see on a 35 or 40 foot boat and so knowing how to handle rope on winches knowing how to handle rope uh, safely recognize the nature of what you're dealing with becomes super apparent the other thing that's like that is a parrot anchor the big uh, parachute sea anchors that go out in front of the boat at sea if you need to kind of uh, stop the boat for a little while and, uh, and and hang out while a storm goes past you launch that big parachute off the front of the boat that thing's going to come in over your bow rollers chafe's going to be a, com- a concern you're probably going to have bits of tube around it to stop it from chafing bits of uh, garden hose tied onto it and it's going to come back and be attached to something probably like a primary winch in the cockpit at which point having a, a, a method of handling winches that does anything less than completely fills the drum is going to be problematic because the force of those big waves going under the boat um, are all going to be exposed onto the winches or going to be imposed rather on the winches and that's when you're going to see some huge loads that you perhaps haven't seen before so handling line in those situations should come as a it's going to come once or twice in a sailing career Um, if you're doing a lot of offshore sailing it's you know three or four times in a year um, at, but it should be that you are happy the way that the rope is going to be worked in that situation and that there's no possible chance that someone's going to get a wrap that they're going to get pulled into the securing into the, the anchor road or into the uh, securing line for the parachute anchor because you've practiced 10,000 times already on winches every day in the cockpit so Whew. We have exceeded two hours, which is uh, kind of a hard stop. I feel like there's an ocean of things I could keep talking about here, but I just wanted to kind of like just go through the process of getting uh, a, well, another one of our ABC out the way and talking about line handling as a, uh, a skill set to be developed. Recognize that it's something that you know can have the capacity to really cause a lot of injury if you're not careful with it and that um, you can practice things on an everyday basis that build your skills to the point where it doesn't matter if it's an open 60 spinnaker on the other side of the winch it doesn't matter if it's a power anchor or if you're putting full pressure on the uh, anchor to make sure it's dug in or whatever it is you can handle it because you know how a winch works you know what uh, elements were designed into it you know where your hands need to be and you've got full respect for it so I hope there's been things in there that are useful that you can take away. If there's any questions or things that you want me to um, expound upon, then please do drop me a line at csmthemariner at gmail.com. And as always, if you haven't, go and look at the Patreon site. I'm going to be doing a lot of work on that in the next couple of days. It's just around the 21st of November now. So I'm going to be in there 
uh, adding a lot more stuff. For those who are already, we've got 63 patrons over there now, and uh, it's really starting to get into gear. I'm hoping to create a lot more conversation, a bit more of a forum style. That's something I haven't been very good at in the past, but I'm looking to add to that now. So those who are already, already subscribed, you're gonna see a massive raft of stuff added. Remember, I'm doing the Rare Nautical Reads five days a week. We're looking to make this finally into two or three times a week. And at the moment, I'm posting twice a week on YouTube. So there's lots and lots of content, but there's gonna be extra stuff on Patreon. And specifically, it's gonna be all about this big project, which is coming up for me in 2023, which is now a confirmed thing. And we've already started to work towards. And uh, hopefully that's gonna be pretty exciting for anybody who enjoys offshore sailing. So wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And as always, I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.